Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very, very excited today because I get to sit across from a guy who I have an enormous amount of respect for in the profession of acting and a man who has always blown me away and on screen always appears to give everything he has to the roles that he plays, and I'm talking about Michael Madsen. And before I start, I want to thank you all so much for all the support. Unbelievable, the emails and the letters and the FedExes and the tweets. You guys are incredible. I also just found out that I got an invitation to go to the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival to do a live podcast under their banner for the second time in three years, which is really exciting, and it wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you very, very much. And so as I look at my guest, Michael Madsen, I normally always think about something I'm going to say. I never know what I'm going to say, and hopefully it will all tie together in some way possible. I know Michael Madsen in a very bizarre way. Michael and I live in the same town in Malibu, California, and our sons play Little League Baseball, and we pass each other on occasions. But believe it or not, I have rarely ever even nodded my head towards Michael Madsen. I don't believe I have ever shaken his hand. 
I don't believe I've ever engaged him in any conversation there. And you know why, everybody? Because I don't think the people that attend these games, and there's a lot of people like Michael Madsen, I don't think they want to talk to a large Jewish man with a Red Sox jersey who's rooting for his own kids. <laughs> I don't think they really care about talking to me. So I don't say anything. I don't walk up to the guy and shake his hand and say, hey, pal, much respect. I loved you in that movie where they put the kitten on the guy who was hanging in the bathroom. <laughs> God, that was my favorite scene. I don't go up to him and say those things, although that was one of my favorite scenes ever. Yeah. It's always nice to watch an actor engaging in furious intercourse with a woman who you're attracted to and then walk in the bathroom and see her husband hanging by the shower curtain rod <laughs> and he takes a little kitten and places it on the guy. That you get the feeling that might have been an improvisational thing of some sort. So I did something really kind of bizarre, but I want to share it with you because I always tell you, give people FedExes. If you give people a FedEx, everybody opens a FedEx. And if you write a nice letter that lets people know how important it is for you to do something, normally they'll call you back. But I didn't really want to give Michael a FedEx, you know, ask people where his address was. I didn't want him to think I was a stalker. I didn't want to go up to him at the park and say, hey, pal, I do this thing. Will you come up to me? Look at me. He'd probably like break one of my legs or have somebody take care of me. So I did this weird thing where I knew that he was a guy who went to this natural grocery store in Malibu, Vintage Grocers, and there's a regular cashier there. And I said, would you mind if I gave you a Federal Express envelope with an invitation for my show to give to Michael? And he said, no problem. His name was Cruz. And lo and behold, I get the call. And Michael says, I'd love to do the podcast. So for all of you who want to try to reach people and want to make an impact on somebody and let them know what you're all about, you got to get to them. And the way to get to them is in a way where it's official, it's nice, presentation's good, and it's in the four seasons of mailings, which is a Federal Express envelope. So when I look at Michael, this is what I think. He has this energy that's really, really powerful, powerful energy. And it's not the kind of energy where he walks in the room and it's like, ah, everything is wonderful. Everything's going to be okay. It's the kind of energy that's a really, really powerful, dark, charismatic energy. He's not a guy you actually want to walk up to and hug like Louis Anderson. He's a guy like you walk up to him, you shake his hand, and you check your hand after you shake it because he has that image of a guy who literally could look at you and kill you. He looks like a man who has actually physically killed people in his lifetime. It's incredible. He has tattoos on his body with colors and designs that I can't even understand or what they are. It's Easter Island. Easter Island. And I look yeah. at his son who's here. And his son doesn't seem to have any tattoos at all that I can see, which is probably because maybe mistakes made and he told you not to do anything. Exactly. But professionally speaking, when I look at Michael, I think of all the movies that I've seen him in and all the people that I've seen him work with. And I think to myself, okay, so how does a guy who has an energy that appears to be dark, appears to be the kind of energy where 
you don't exactly look at the guy and think, hey, this guy's an easy hang. This guy's a guy you want to hang out with in terms of like, let's just take an example of somebody like a woman. When you do the Ellen DeGeneres show, if you're an actor or an actress and you go on her show, there's this light, bubbly energy. She might be dark off stage. Who knows? She might be the worst to her staff or she might be the best. But the presence that you see is somebody who's really, really that warmth. And when you're around Michael, he has that intensity. But there's something about that intensity that translates into brilliant performances. And so if you looked at a list of the people that this guy has worked with, and I'll just name a few random people, Harvey Keitel, Powers Booth, Al Pacino, Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Kingsley, Alec Baldwin. You're talking about people who are brilliant, brilliant people. You're talking about people that are like Hall of Fame kind of people. You're talking about people that if they live and go the distance are going to be on the stage at the Academy Award ceremony and be getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. And one of the people that I know these worked with on multiple occasions is Quentin Tarantino. And I think there isn't a doubt in anybody's mind that this guy is a genius. And there isn't a doubt in many people's minds that the people that I mentioned are geniuses. Or if you don't think they're a genius, you at least know that they are brilliant, brilliant actors. And so... Quentin Tarantino has used Michael Madsen four times. Four times. Why do you work with somebody four times? You work with somebody four times because they give you so much with every frame. And if you're a director or producer, every take they give you, they give you it like it's going to be put in a time capsule. They book you and they put you on their movies every time because they know that you know what they want. You have that connection with them. You're the same species as them. They know what you're thinking. You know what they're thinking. And every frame you deliver is magic. And even though when I'm sitting across from Michael Madsen, you get the feeling He's had a very hard life. You get the feeling the guy has lived life hard. You get the feeling the guy has really, really probably struggled in a lot of times that we're going to talk about on the podcast personally and professionally. But what you get is through all that and putting all that aside when it comes to the work, the work that we're all doing out there. It doesn't matter if we're insurance salesmen. It doesn't matter if we're a hotel manager or we're in the acting profession. The bottom line is to be the best representation of yourself. Do everything you can to give everything you have, every fiber of your body, for whatever task is ahead of you in your profession. And if it's not your boss, well, Quentin Tarantino technically would be like a boss in a job. He's the guy who hired you. He's the guy who's looking at you to give him what he's asking. And in any profession, if you can do that and you can keep exceeding everybody's expectations over and over again, you will never stop working. And you know how I know that? Because I'm sitting across from a guy who's done over 150 movies. How many people do you know that have done 150 movies? And how many people does anybody know 
who has worked with Quentin Tarantino four times. Maybe there are a lot of people, and there are, but those people have the same quality. They deliver for the guy. They always deliver. No matter what's happening in their life, no matter what happened, their car gets repossessed, they lose their license, they're going through a divorce, they get on the set and they deliver, and they deliver with every fiber of their body. And that is why Michael Madsen is one of the most respected actors in the business. And that is why I would always go to see a film with Michael Madsen. That is why I can always remember scenes that Michael Madsen has done in his career. Because he blew me the fuck away. And he created those holy shit moments that I love in film. So if I could say anything to you out there in the audience, the bottom line is give everything you have to your profession fight as hard as you can and push the demons aside and when it comes time when the spotlight's on you deliver like you've never delivered before create great relationships and create holy shit moments and you will have the kind of career that michael madsen has here we go in three two they ain't one at a time in here we're mad communicate this show will have laughter i got everybody pregnant with barry cats and semen infections caused by jacuzzi water i'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking okay here we go is there anything else i should know you're on what people on twitter have been asking for barry cats to come back a lot if you're undeniable you will not be denied if you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a jew white manager like barry cats here we go you fucking firing me up cats being a manager is just turning nose into yeses undeniable creating holy shit moments i love this man barry cats back in the house 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 let's do this before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. 
Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, where we explore another episode of human resources gone wrong. I want to give my guest, Michael Matson the proper introduction. I'm so excited. This is going to be an incredibly inspirational time we're going to have, and I know you guys are going to like it a lot. So here's the introduction, and then we will tap Michael and wake him up after I'm done. Michael Madsen is an American actor, poet, and photographer who has appeared, as I said, in over 150 films. Madsen is also credited with the voice work in several video games, including Grand Theft Auto, Three True Crime, Streets of L.A., Dishonored, The Walking Dead Season 2, Call of Duty, Black Ops 2. Madsen was born in Chicago. His parents divorced in the 60s, and his mother left a career in finance to pursue a career in the arts, encouraged by film critic Roger Ebert. His siblings are Cheryl Madsen, an entrepreneur and Academy Award-nominated actress Virginia Madsen. Madsen's acting career began at the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago, where he served as an apprentice under actor John Malkovich. Hack. I'm kidding. And one of the most amazing actors ever. No wonder you found the work ethic. Michael Madsen's long career spans 25 years, and believe it or not, it's not just 150, it's more than 170 films in which he's played memorable characters in a myriad box office hits, including Kill Bill, Sin City, Hell Ride, Die Another Day, Donnie Brasco, Species, The Getaway, The Doors, Thelma and Louise, and my kid's personal favorite, Free Willy. Michael Madsen is notably recognized for his role as Mr. Blonde in Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Can anybody forget that? I can never forget that. In recent years, Madsen has received Best Actor Awards for his role in the Irish boxing film Strength and Honor from the New York International Film Festival, the Boston Film Festival, and the Downtown Los Angeles Film Festival. Madsen received the Golden Dolphin Award at the 25th Festroia Festival in Portugal, an award also given to veterans Kirk Douglas and Robert Mitchum. Wow. Recent television appearances include roles on The Mob Doctor, Golden Boy, and Blue Bloods, and most recently on Hawaii Five-0. In 2014, Madsen was on location in Las Vegas, starring in the feature film Silver City in the role of famed casino owner Ted Binion, with Josh Evans directing and Robert Evans producing. Wow. He also worked on a documentary film about the Western with Robert Redford. Again, these associations with amazing people, it just goes on and on and on. It's amazing. So great. Quentin Tarantino has tapped him for a role in his latest film, The Hateful Eight, which was his fourth collaboration with Madsen. He's an accomplished poet, and his first book, Burning in Paradise, with a foreword by the late Dennis Hopper, won the Independent Firecracker Award and was later translated into Norwegian. You know, if you're translated into Norwegian, you're doing something right. He has a worldwide following of his work and honored in international poetry festivals in Italy and Mexico. He was recently the guest of honor at the Crossing Border Festival in the Netherlands. His complete poetic works is an international bestseller now. He followed that by his book Signs of Life dedicated to Chris Penn. This unique work combined his own original photography as well as poetry. His next book, A Poetry American Badass, was dedicated to the memory of the late David Carradine, his friend and Kill Bill co-star. His most recent book, Expecting Rain, is incredible and has a foreword by Jerry Hopkins. you got to check all of those out. 
Please welcome my guest today. What an honor. It's so exciting to be face-to-face with a man that I passed and never said hi to, Michael Madsen. That was a great introduction, I must say. <laughs> the best I ever had from anybody. Uh, wow. I didn't never heard it all summed up like that before. Uh, David Carradine's father, John Carradine, actually made 523 pictures. So he's got me beat by... 300. He did 40 films that he didn't even get credited for in his early career. Why wouldn't he have gotten credit for it? Because he was like an extra or like a background uh, actor. And uh, a lot of those people never even got a credit. It wasn't until he started talking in little small roles that he uh, he worked his whole life. He was like in his 80s and he's still making films. Who is the one that did the show that I love doing? If you can take this pebble from my hand, grasshopper. Oh, that was David. That was David. Yeah. Maybe he was Kung Fu. His father was John Carradine, and John even played uh, Dracula, I think, a couple times with Bela Lugosi. And, and uh, John Carradine, wow, he, he did... Uh, he was one of those character actors from back in the day who just did so many incredible films. I mean, David would... When I first met David... That's one of the first questions I asked him was about his father. And uh, it was the beginning of a really good friendship we had. The last time I saw David was um, at LAX. I was getting ready to go to Ireland to shoot Strength and Honor. And David had just got back from Istanbul. I don't know what he was doing over there, but he lit up a cigarette right in the airport terminal. (laughs) And I was like, David, you know, what are you doing? He says, I'm smoking a cigarette. I said, yeah, I can see that. And he goes on, oh, I'll keep smoking it until someone asks me to put it out. <laughs> he was kind of like that. And um, I said, well, I got to go. My flight's coming. And and, uh, and I turned around and, and, he, and he, he was looking at me and I go, what's on your mind? And he goes, oh, I just thinking, uh, he goes, don't ever buy anything from somebody who's out of breath. <laughs> that was the last thing. David ever said to me. What do you think he meant by that? I, I guess if I met someone who was really anxious and sweaty and out of breath and they were trying to sell me something, I probably shouldn't buy it. But that was his, that was, I don't know why he was thinking it right then and there or why he said that to me. I just thought it was very funny. I'm always fascinated by the last things that people say to people. And I remember I interviewed a producer, Don Rio, who created My Wife and Kids with Damon Wayans and worked on so many different things. And he hired Bill Bixby to direct an episode of one of his shows when Bill was dying of cancer. Right. Very sick. And they finished the week and Bill was very, very frail. And he's walking through the studio lot and he told me that a limousine pulled up right by him and the dark window came down and it was Bill Bixby and Bill reached his hand out to Don and shook his hand and looked at him and said, always buy the fine wine. Took his hand back, the window went up and he passed away a few days later. Yeah, the uh, expensive ones are usually very good. (laughs) You don't want any cheap wine. It's not good for you. I wish you were running a studio. Me. After saying all these nice things about me, I, I wish you were like running Paramount or something. <laughs> we'd, all, we'd all be a lot better off, wouldn't now we? Now you talk like when I say nice things about you, you act like 
you're some kind of complete asshole who's a self-destructive, horrible person. Well, it, 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 it's, it's, it's my, my business is, is um, it can be incredibly uh, destructive. I mean, it's, you got to really be on your, on your best all the time. I, I think it's part of L.A. more than it is the other world because whenever I leave the country, I feel like I get a lot more respect in other countries from other cultures than I do in America or what I do from especially like in Hollywood. You know, this whole celebrity kind of worship that goes on with the reality television shows and, and the, you know, all these entertainment shows that seek to just destroy people, you know, based on a mistake that they made or didn't make and never really get to tell their side of anything. It, it's really kind of, it's hard. You know, you're walking around and you don't want to step on a crack in the sidewalk because everybody's waiting for you to do that. And it's very few times that anybody ever can sit down like you just did and very nicely sum up somebody with all of the compliments you gave me. It's, um, it's not a common occurrence for me or for a lot of guys that I know that, that work as much as I do. You'd, you'd think that, you know, just the doing of it would be enough to, to give you a sense of accomplishment or a sense of, you know, at least a, a healthy ego, but it doesn't really happen that much. It doesn't happen hardly ever. And more, more likely than not, there's someone who's out there to shoot you down than there is someone to say something nice. So uh, I'm not crying about it. I'm just saying it, it's, a, it's a symptom of being a successful actor in California, you know, in, in, uh, in Hollywood, that whole kind of, you know, the little jingles that they play in the beginning of these variety shows and, and become just, you know, mediocre entertainment. But the more of that that's out there, the more that people begin to accept mediocrity. And then once they do, mediocrity becomes the normal thing, you know? In my mind, it doesn't matter if mediocrity becomes the normal thing because excellence will stand out even greater than anything else and people will know what's great. Like, for instance, tell me the last time anybody ever said Michael Madsen, shitty actor. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, I w I, I'd have to say that's never happened. Exactly. I have never heard that. So then what are you talking about? Ah, well, uh, you know, one must be very humble about their accomplishments. I, I'd never been one to get up on a hill and blow a trumpet about what I do. Coincidentally, we have a trumpet here. And, I mean, uh, <laughs> no. if somebody's going to give me a job, I'm going to, damn it, I'm going to go and I'm going to do my best on that no matter what. And a lot of times you're surrounded by a lot of things that will surely prevent you from being able to do that. You know, you can be Marlon Brando and mm -hmm. not be able to get away with something because of the, the circumstances of the production. What's the longest amount of time in the past 20 years that you've gone without working? I'm the longest amount of days without shooting a frame of work. I went for probably a good year. Uh, One year? More, more than a few times, though. I've gone for a year without working and then worked a lot and then not for another year and it was just the circumstances of what was available for somebody like me. And I've also been, I got to say, the victim of really bad representation. And if you don't have a good rep, if you don't have a good agent or a manager, you can forget about it because 
it's just the way it is. I mean, there's a system set up for hiring people that is all problematic because it has to do with who your, your agent is. I've been with the biggest agencies in, in Hollywood at one point or another. But when you, if you ever move on from them, you better forget about getting back in that door ever. And, the and, door of the people that they work with. In other words, what Michael's yeah. saying is, let's say you're represented by Creative Artist Agency. I was, yeah. And let's say that you decide that they're not working as hard for you anymore, but William Morris Endeavor wants you badly, and they're telling you they're going to work hard for you. Yeah. So you switch to William Morris Endeavor, and then there's a film that comes out that's directed by a guy who's represented by CAA, and the star of the film was represented by CAA, and yeah. you want to get in the movie. What he's saying is they're going to do everything in their power to try to not have you get that movie. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, no, unfortunately, that's that's the way it is, and and uh, you know, after a while, if you're if you're established enough, you know, people will somehow or another they'll get to you in one way or another to to find out if you want to do this or that. But along the way, sometimes you you end up doing a lot of pictures that you might not want to do, or things that you have to do, just like a bricklayer, or an architect, or a firefighter, or something. Sooner or later, it becomes a job, and you have a big. I have a big family, and you got to support your family. And, you know, once you get a certain lifestyle, you don't want to lose that lifestyle. And you may take a job that you might otherwise not do uh, just so you can keep putting groceries in the refrigerator. And I didn't think we'd be talking about the movie Species so soon, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm well, I'm well, Species 2, I could have done without, that's for sure. Uh, the first one I thought was really good, and you know, I got that because... Sometimes uh, you do things for the respect. Well, sometimes I, you do it for the cash, right? I, I had done the getaway with Roger Donaldson. And while we were doing that, you know, that's the one with the cat on the guy that's mm -hmm. hanging. And I did make that up, by the way. I, I knew it! I, I thought it was funny. And, you know, I had the silly cat and I thought it was funny. And I, I put it on him and... And Jennifer spun him around in a circle. And... I just want to share with you, out of all the things that you've done in your career, I haven't seen everything, obviously. I couldn't see 170 movies no, or else I'd, be, I'd buy a handgun. But the point is that out of all the things I've seen of yours, that scene stands out to me. Like that scene from the sleeping with the woman in front of her husband to the guy hanging in the bathroom, that stands out to me. Again, when you talk about holy shit moments, and the fact that you improvised the kitten, because what you were doing is basically you're the most evil guy in the world, but you're not so evil because a girl wants to sleep with you yeah. in front of her husband. <laughs> yeah. And then the guys hang in the bathroom, the most horrible thing in the world. Suicide is one of the worst things that could ever happen. And the fact that this evil guy is taking the most innocent symbol, the kitten, and putting it on the guy who's dead, it was just unbelievable. You get a little carried away when you're playing a character like that. And because you're in a permissive environment and you come up with an idea like that, it's, you have to do it. It's kind of like being inspired by your own darkest ability to understand what darkness is. And, you know, it becomes funny and it becomes kind of uh, entertaining. And when you're making a picture, you're kind of in a bubble, you know, and you're permitted to do certain things that, you wouldn't normally be permitted to do in everyday society. You're not going to hang a cat on some guy who's, you know, hung himself. But, you know, you have to see the original getaway, you know, the Steve McQueen version of the getaway. 
Alateri um, is pretty, he also was Salazzo in The Godfather, and he was really, really, I, Al made a big impression on me when I saw that film when I was just a little boy. And so when I got, I wanted to play Doc McCoy, obviously, I wanted to do Alec Baldwin's part, but um, I had to settle for Rudy, and I figured I owed it to Alateri to bring something to it that was equally as disturbing as what he did. And I found little things to do here and there. And uh, well, that day we were just laughing and just like everybody was just, uh, I was so into the guy that I, I, I started to think like him and, and, and the levity of it all. And, you know, you see this poor guy hangs himself in the bathroom. I mean, you have to kind of think of, of you put yourself in the circumstances of the character and what would he do based on, you know, what's been written or what you think of in the spur of the moment. And the cat, it was one of those things that just came out of nowhere. You know, even, even in Reservoir Dogs, you know, when I spoke in the ear, that was never in the script. It was just something I thought of. I mean, I had an ear in my hand and I didn't know what to do with it. It was very awkward, you know. I step in the frame with it and I just, I didn't know what to do with it. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with this fucking thing? And then I just went, hey, can you hear me? And I spoke into it because, you know, it is an ear. And I just thought it was funny, but it wasn't planned, you know. It just happened. And uh, it turned out to be this thing that's been, you know, that's turned into this, this cinematic moment of... I remember Quentin came up to me about two days later. And he goes, do you remember when you spoke in the ear? And I go, yeah. And he goes, we're going to keep it in the movie. And I said, oh, good, you know, wonderful. I mean, I had never thought it wouldn't be in the film. But I realized it's really his call. It's a director's medium, after all. They're going to have the final say about whether you do or don't do. But the, the cat, when we, I put the cat on him, and then when I have to go past him to go to the bathroom, which in the Alvatari version, Al's actually sitting on the toilet with the guy hung in front of him. And the guy in that movie was Howard from the Andy Griffith Show. And I guess that must have been way before the Andy Griffith Show. But he had that kind of, you know, innocence about him. It made it so sad that he was hanging. But I didn't want to sit on the toilet, so I thought it would be funny just to walk around and just, you know, take a piss. And, and, and it had the same effect. And uh, But when I went past him, I, I had to move him out of the way. And so he started to spin with the cat hanging on him. And I didn't really know it because I was my back was to him and I could sort of, you know, realize that he was spinning around. And, uh, you know, Roger loved it and Jennifer loved it and everybody thought it was really funny. And uh, she was great to work with, by the way. She was very... Jennifer Tilly. Yeah. I mean, if you have to do that kind of stuff with a woman or with an actress and they're not open to suggestions, it's not going to work. You know what I mean? It, it really isn't. And... She was really, really so fun, and so she knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it, and, and I thought she, she's so uh, spontaneous. It, it made it, it helped me, you know, with, with my part. But Roger, actually, after he showed that scene to the studio, Roger, Roger Donaldson, he had to go back and shoot the kitty jumping off the guy's foot because the censors or the people who decide these things, they said it was too horrible that the cat was on the guy hung. 
the guy hung didn't bother anybody. The fact that he hanged himself, that didn't bother anybody. Or that Rudy did this horrible thing, that didn't matter. But they were worried about the little kitty. And they thought they were going to get in trouble from the animal rights people that we left the cat hanging on a dead guy. And so he had to go back. There was a separate shot of the little kitty coming down his leg and it hops off and runs away. And he had to go back and do that like two days after we shot that just to satisfy the the uh, people. That, very funny. Incredible. Now, Tim Robbins, I remember I had a conversation with him once about how it's possible to immerse yourself in a character when you're in the movie, you're having not only a physical relationship with the female character, but you're having a connection and possibly they're the love of your life in the film. And when you're doing these scenes, how do you put yourself in a position where, I mean, you could say, well, it's just acting, but there's got to be a connection. The thing is, is that if you do have a wife or you do have a girlfriend, those kind of scenes and those kind of things go down completely differently. Like, you, you need to have a wife or a significant other who's very, very understanding, who really knows that what you do for a living is acting and that there are certain lines you don't cross. And it's not just for, it's just out of respect, I think. And it's also kind of like, you know, it's too cavalier to just do it the other way. It, it would be too destructive to, to a, a relationship. I mean, I met my wife right after I finished that picture. So there's a lot to be said for things that happen or develop during the making of a film. Now, one of the things I always say sometimes as a joke when somebody sends me something to look at because I'm a manager and I'm also a producer as well, and they'll send me something and I'll say, listen, I just want to share with you something. When I watch this, I just want you to know I'm going to be watching this like I'm the A-list actor doing the love scene with a beautiful starlet. And they'll say, well, what are you talking about? And I'll say, listen, don't get offended if I get excited and don't get offended if I don't. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a big factor of that because a lot of times if you're not actually sleeping with that person, if you're not actually in a relationship with them off screen, chances are you're getting the sack with them in a movie and you're not going to get any reaction whatsoever. Is there's too much, um, if the familiarity is already there, then it's like it's okay to go there. But if you haven't been there, if you haven't been doing that, you're just, it's too impersonal. There's too many people watching and, you know, it's, it's not a porno. And so, you're, you know, it's simulated, supposedly. But out of respect for my, my wife, who I met shortly after that, she's been very, very understanding of, of, of things I have to do. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, 
you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here's another interesting thing. Before you met your wife, yeah. it appears like you're the kind of person who women would be very drawn to because a lot of women are drawn to that guy who appears like he's that rebel, that bad boy or whatever it is. Like the guy who just has that energy like, ah, this guy, I want to be around that. And so what was it about your wife? I mean, you could be at the time before you met her, like the day before you met her. If you were to look at the trajectory of the type of people that you were able to be around, not whether you slept with them or you didn't just hang with the most beautiful, extraordinary, unique, worldly people in the world, you can imagine your wife, what kind of person she had to be to have you say to yourself, you know what, um, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to rally around this one. What was it about her that blew you away and stole your heart, your mind, and a little bit lower into the left? I, I just know that the first time I saw her, I was completely, I just, uh, I mean, you don't see a girl like that every day. And, you know, she's not, a, she's not an actress. And Can she's you tell us the circumstances of where you met her? Well, she moved in across the street from my best friend, uh, an actor buddy of mine. And uh, he was up in Benedict Canyon. And uh, I had just uh, got divorced and for the second time. And he said, um, you know, this girl moved in across the street. And he goes, oh, my God, you know. She keeps coming outside and washing her car. And I can't take it. She's so beautiful. I, I'm freaking out. And I said, well, have you talked to her? And he goes, yeah, a couple times. But, oh, my God, you know, she doesn't really want to. I don't think she, I have a chance of dating her. He goes, why don't you come over here and, and you can meet her? And I said, okay. So I had a yellow 57 Chevy and uh, it was kind of beat up. And I drove over there and uh, and we stood in the kitchen looking out the window waiting for her to come out. <laughs> and we were just, you know, he goes, she's going to come out any minute, any minute. And we were just waiting and waiting. <laughs> and we were waiting for her. And I was like, Jesus, man, come on, you know. So he goes, oh, I'm going to call her. So he calls her and he tells her, hey, my, my buddy Mike is over here. He goes, you know, why don't you come over? So I guess she was leaving to go somewhere or something. So she, there she comes, and she came over. And uh, uh, <laughs> you remember what she was wearing? Yeah, yeah. She had a plaid, uh, a red plaid, uh, like uh, Catholic schoolgirl skirt on, with uh, black boots that like strapped up to the knee. She's very casual, and um, she just. I don't know. She came in the house and, and uh, she was very polite and said she had to go. And uh, oddly enough, I invited her to a screening of The Getaway because it was finished now. It was ready to come out in theaters. And uh, I was getting ready to go do Wyatt Earp. And uh, Roger was going to screen The Getaway for me at Universal. And I said, would you go with me to the screening? And my buddy's looking at me like, you know, I'm already trying to get her to go out with me right in front of him. And he didn't appreciate that. So uh, he drove her to the screening. Okay. They came together. And, uh, you know, we watched the movie. And, and uh, 
I made a small advancement uh, to her. Now, were you uncomfortable watching the scenes with you and Jennifer? No, I was pretty much over it by then. Or were you saying to yourself, no, I'm saying, were you uncomfortable knowing that she was watching those? Or were you saying to yourself, hey, if she watches these scenes, she's definitely going to want to go out with me? Well, as it turns out, she was scared to death of me. Like me, we have something in common. It had the the opposite effect on on her. That I would have thought, hey, this is a cool movie. Hey, look at my character. She's fucking wild, man, you know? And and she was like, well, she told Ellie, she goes, that fucking guy's insane. She goes, keep him away from me. And uh, so I, I didn't see much future in our relationship. Uh, but I told him, I said, look, buddy, I'll give you 10 days to seal the deal. And You, know, <laughs> you told him he has 10 days. We're, we're, we're friends, and I'll give you 10 days to figure it out. And if you don't, then I'm taking that, okay, because it's over. And You thought you could take it. Well, I, I, I did, yeah. I, I didn't have a doubt about that. I mean, I, Why didn't you have a doubt? She didn't really well, give I you any not, energy. Because I wasn't going to give up. There was nothing in the world that made me give up. Uh-huh. And uh, you've probably seen her wandering around the school over there. And, you know, she's one in a million. I mean, you don't see a girl like that every day. She's from Kansas City. You know, she was good-looking enough to be a, an actress or a model, but she didn't decide to do that. And she's a mother and, a, and a, hell, a, a hell of a mother, by the way. And you get a woman like that, you don't want to betray her, you know. You just, the last thing in the world you want to do. Especially if they're going to be accepting of the fact that that might happen. It makes it even less likely that you're going to do it. And we've been together now like 20-some years, and so. So the next time you had to do a similar scene... How do you keep the train on the tracks with the woman that you love who's the mother of your children? Well, like I was saying, you know, there's a difference in physicality if you're not actually with that person outside of making the film. The chances of of, of getting, uh, the chance of anything happening, you know, physically when you're in a love scene is like zero. I mean, a lot of these girls, they have a body double or whatever, if they're afraid of their body and it's only their head. And they're so complicated. You know, there's, there's 150 people on the set staring at you with a camera. And it's not very conducive to, 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 uh, to, to actually um, do anything. If you don't mind, I would love to go way, 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 way back in the way back sure. machine. Sure. All right. So take me back to what it was like in your home, your siblings, what kind of socioeconomic area it was, how you grew up, and then take me to the point where you had the first inspiration. What was it that made you say, you know what, I want to be in this business? My father was a firefighter, and uh, my mom was very, very well read. She probably read every book you can ever think of. And she was incredible uh, with history and language and poetry and, 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 and literature and very self-taught. And um, so I had these two different uh, persuasions. You know, I had my dad who was a big, scary, you know, son of a gun who would sooner throw you down the fucking stairs than have a conversation. And my mom was just the opposite. You know, she was very, very artistic and very into, uh, you know, self-discovery of the arts and things like that. So I had these two, you know, things going on. My dad wanted me to be a tough guy. My mom wanted me to read a book. And so, you know, it was weird. And I, I uh, but they got divorced when I was 11 years old. And so 
you know, for anybody who doesn't already know that, you know, it doesn't make you special because it happens to everybody, but it's kind of, you get ripped apart, you know, you really get ripped in half when that happens. And, and, you know, it has a, it has a, a huge mental effect on you. And I think it made me very lonely and it made me, you know, we moved, we, I, I tended to stick around my mom because my dad really wasn't really available for anybody emotionally after they split up. And so because I was with my mom and my two sisters, you know, I was the boy in the family and, and uh, I, I, I was, I was in, in trouble quite a bit. I seemed to always be, <laughs> I was running around with the wrong kind of people. I, I tended to, to gravitate towards criminals for some reason, I don't know why, but uh, I think that a lot of my buddies were misfits or, or just malcontented for some reason. And they seemed to be a lot more fun to hang around than uh, the guys who were the, the, the captain of the football team or the, the, the road scholar or something like that. And uh, maybe it was a way to satisfy my, my father's uh, opinion of me, you know, him wanting to meet, wanting me to be um, a hellion or something. And uh, I, I, I gravitated, uh, I didn't really, I hated school, I didn't have anything to do with it. And I jumped out the window of my kindergarten class because the- uh, I hope it was the first floor. It was, yeah. It was about a 10 foot drop, it was nothing. But um, my teacher had told me that I, she was gonna put me in the spanking machine and I pictured this giant metal machine that they were going to put me in and the fucking thing was going to, you know, I'd be strapped in and it was going to spank me. And I pictured it in my head and I really thought that it really existed. I thought there was such a thing. Here, I'm going to put you in the spanking machine, Mr. Matson. I was like, oh my God. And she went out to do the hall duty and I pictured it in my mind. I was like, oh God, you know, and I ran, <laughs> I went and opened the window and I jumped out the window. <laughs> And uh, I didn't like school at, at all. And then that went on into high school and all that. I barely graduated. I think I went back and got my GED. Like I didn't graduate with my class. And I only did that to make my mom happy. But I, I wanted to be uh, uh, um, Richard Petty. I mean, that was my huge deal. Is the race car driver. Yeah. I wanted to build cars. I wanted to race cars. And that was my big thing. I thought that was going to be what I was going to do. And uh, I built a Roadrunner and uh, uh, a Super B. I was a big Plymouth guy, a big Mopar guy. And um, I was a quarter mile drag car. And um, me and my buddies, you know, uh, that's pretty much what we were doing. We were just gearheads and smoked a lot of pot. And uh, But I had a really bad wreck. I had a bad accident. I had rolled upside down in the, in the Roadrunner. And... Uh, pretty much kind of ended my my uh, <laughs> my ideas of, of being a, a, a race car driver. But I got to say, you know, if I can get closer to your question, uh, I, I always liked old movies. I always liked the old black and white pictures of Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart and, and people that really stuck out of my mind as um, I understood it. I understood them. And I didn't so much think that they were an actor as they were just, uh, expressing inside of their own personality on a, on a movie screen. And so I thought, how difficult can that be? I mean, that's 
probably pretty simple to do that. And uh, I, so I went to the library, and I got a biography of Clark Gable, and I read that. And then I read James Cagney's biography. And then uh, right about that time, I was watching a movie. I was at my mom's sister's house, and her family had a lot more money than we did. They had a nice big color TV, and you know, they had a, her husband had a plane, and wow, you know, going to their house was like a big deal because we didn't have fuck all. And uh, I was watching a movie called Heaven Knows Mr. Allison that was directed by John Huston. And it's Bob Mitchum and Deborah Carr. He's a Marine, and they're trapped on an island, and the island's occupied by the Japanese, and they have to go hide in this cave. And, and I don't know, there's something about Mitchum that was so incredibly, uh, you know, he just seemed like somebody who didn't want to mess around with him. But he also seemed to be so gentle and so, like, really... He knew that he was a menacing presence, and he knew that he came off that way. But he didn't necessarily want to, he didn't want to brag about it. He didn't want to overdo it. He didn't need to, because it was there without him trying to have it there. And I just thought it was such an interesting quality as an actor to have. And there's really no picture that he ever made beside that, where he had that really definite, you know, maybe in the sundowners. Heaven Knows Mr. Allison and the Sundowners are the two best Robert Mitchum movies he ever made. Because he really was those two guys in conflict and he was able to play it right just subconsciously. Because if you watch him in an interview, you watch him on Dick Cavett or something like that or some of these shows that he did or he was on What's My Line or To Tell the Truth, I think. And, and you could see that he almost had a fight against being that guy. Because he realized... Like at the end of his career, I read this interview that, that he did, and, he, and they said, uh, you know, sum it up, Bob. You know, sum it up, man. What is your, you know, your 80 years of being an actor? What, you know, sum it up. And he goes, well, <laughs> being an actor is uh, an embarrassing and humiliating profession. They pay you to do nothing, and in the end, it all means nothing. And you know, I, I wondered if, if at that point, if he really believed that or he was saying it because it applied to the personality that he had put out for 50 years, you know, and he was making the people happy who wanted to hear him say something like that. Because I think that deep down, if he would have got the Academy Award for, uh, for, for Ryan's daughter, I think his whole kind of the rest of the next 30, 40 years of him would have been a lot different. I think he would have been a lot less cynical. He probably wouldn't have drank so much. And I think he might have been a different guy, you know, because I think he would have liked to have been acknowledged, even though he personally gave off the vibe that he didn't give a shit if that ever happened. You know, that don't give a shit attitude is very defensive, you know, and it's it really it's there to cover up anybody knowing that you really do care anyway that's that's what gave me the idea I thought, I thought his his seeing him in a movie and then Humphrey Bogart in uh, Key Largo uh, I just I realized I, well, I can do that I can do that I understand I can, I can play that kind of guy I can do that but you know the chances of me or my sister you know coming out of Chicago uh 
And making it in the film industry got to be a hundred million to one for us both to have done that. I don't know how that happened. I really don't. I know we were talking on the phone the other day about destiny, and and I don't really know if there is such a thing as destiny. Then you couldn't be able to change it. It's not alterable if it is that word destiny. And I don't know how much you can really fuck with it, or how much you can really stop certain things from happening that are meant to be. But. There's so many horrific things that have happened in history that you have to go, wow, why did that happen? Was that supposed to happen? Well, then again, everything can't just be haphazard because then that doesn't make sense either. I just don't think human beings have been blessed with, with the uh, ability to understand the enormity of, of, of everything, you know? I'm really getting grim here, aren't I? No, it's perfect. So you watch these movies, you're probably doing a bunch of odd jobs. Were you living with your parents still? Well, I was living with my mom uh, and my sisters, um, but I, I run off. I was working at a car wash when I was like 15. You know, I, I worked at gas stations and um, pumping gas. So what was your first thing that you did as an actor? What was your first dipping your toe in the water. When was that? How old were you and where was it? I was in, um, I, I, I went, to, I tried to go to school to become a paramedic and, uh, or like an ambulance attendant. And uh, I always wanted to be a doctor, but I knew that that would never happen because I didn't have the patience to go to school. And I heard it took eight years and I was like, oh man, that's not gonna happen. So, um, you know, my father was pressuring me a lot to be a cop or to be a fireman, and uh, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And uh, um, I had went with him on a few times where he was visiting, going to places to put fires out, and I saw some pretty horrible things that I, I kind of turned me against it. But I, uh, I was going to be a paramedic, and I thought, well, that would make him happy. And, and in the end, I wanted to make my dad happy, and... And I spent years of my life trying to do that. And he recently passed away in uh, December of last year. So I think I'll finally be able to unload myself from that idea. But uh, there was a kid in my in my class. His name was Chip. And he was an actor. And he asked me to go with him to an audition. And, and I I didn't really want to do that. But we, we rode the uh, L train together uh, to school. Right. And so I said, yeah, sure, man, I'll go with you. And uh, uh, we went in this in this big auditorium in the downtown and there was like 50 guys in there. And there was people sitting at a long table like this down in front. And, uh, you know, I couldn't believe how many guys were in there. And so, you know, I went and I sat like up in the back and then I watched all these guys going down one by one and they'd come in and they'd pick up their thing, you know, they'd try to read and, and they'd be like, good, that's a good job, see you later, buddy, next. And I watched these poor guys, man, one after another just get dismissed, man, just not, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. And I was going, wow, man. And then there goes Chip, you know, he was his turn, he went down and... He, he lasted about maybe 10 seconds. He hadn't even, I mean, they were just like, you know. And so when I saw him leaving, I, I, I got up, right? And I went down the stairs and and uh, we were walking out the door. And these people were from LA. And they were in Chicago looking for talent. 
And I didn't know that. And when I was leaving, and the guy goes, he goes, hey, where are you going? And I said, I, why are you asking me that? And he says, no, where, where are you, where are you? And I said, I'm, who wants to know? And he, and, he, and he was like, oh, he says, aren't you an actor? And I go, no, man. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, how weird is he asking me that? Because, you know, I did like some of these guys I'd see in movies, and Errol Flynn, and, and, and some of these kind of, you know, people that stuck in my mind. So I, I kind of, um, I thought it was funny that he was asking me that. Meanwhile, Chip is looking at me like he wants to kill me. And I, I, I know now why he was looking at me that way, but I didn't know that. The same reason your friend with your <laughs> wife across the street was looking at you. <laughs> so he, Chip, I'll give you 10 days to get this part. Yeah, you don't get this part, I'm like, taking this part. It's over, buddy. So he, uh, 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 he goes, uh, you want to read? And I go, no, man, I don't know. And he goes, come on, it's easy. But we were over by the door. And all those people were at that big table over there. And I, I, and I looked at all, all those boys and, I, and I, I said, no, man, I'm not going to sit at that table over there. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to go over there. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, we'll do it right over here. He goes, let's go over here alone. And I was like, wow, really, man? You're going to push this on me. And he goes, no, no, no. Can I just read over here? And I said, okay, fine. But now for the audience, this is what's called a cold read, <laughs> which means that the actor doesn't have any of the material. He's handed the piece of paper with the script and he's asked to perform it to the best of his ability, knowing that he hasn't spent one second preparing or rehearsing it. And a lot of times you'll go into a room and people will test you or sometimes even like really, really test you to see if you can do something on the spur of the moment to see if you can be directable. And so this is a fascinating thing that happened to you, knowing that your first audition was an audition where you didn't even have a chance to prepare. Mm. So what happened? Well, I never got any better at it, that's for sure. You know, little did I know that the process of going through to get hired for something, because uh, I probably would have been a lumberjack if I had really known what the fuck I was going to have to do. But I said, okay, man, whatever. And we went and we sat in these little metal chairs, or brown metal chairs and we were in the wings of a theater because that's where this thing was it was at a big theater and we were sitting in the wings on these little metal chairs and he gave me this piece of paper and he goes okay you're that guy and i'm this guy and i said okay and we read this thing back and forth and it was really like two pages and then that was it and we were both sitting there and he's staring at me and i said well is that it and he goes yeah that's it, that's it. and i said okay man now getting up to go, and he goes, um, he goes, you know, what do you do? And I said, I race cars, man. I'm, you know, uh, I'm an idiot. And he said, um, if you went to California or you went to New York, you could get work as an actor. And I said, that's absurd. I said, really? And he goes, yeah, you, you would. And I said, yeah, but I, I don't know anything about it. And he goes, well, you don't need to. And I said, okay you know uh and so then he asked me if i had an agent and of course obviously i didn't it was a really dumb question but my sister had an agent in virginia was doing singing telegrams and and uh and uh um she was doing a lot of theater and so she had an agent and so i said well uh he goes, you know what an agent is and i go yeah 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 i said my sister has one and uh 
he said, what's her name? I said, her name was Harice Davidson. And I said, uh, yeah, he gave me her, her name. And he goes, I know who she is. And I went, oh, well, okay. And he goes, so if I needed to get in contact with you, I could call her. And I said, yeah, I, I guess you could. And so, like, two weeks later, uh, my sister came home. And uh, I was in a lot of trouble at, during that time. And, uh, Define a lot of trouble. Oh, I got caught for uh, me and my me and a friend of mine stole a car and we had taken it apart and <laughs> sold the radiator and the alternator and the brake pads and the drums and the uh, various things. And um, we got caught for that and it was big trouble. And um, we had it in my mother's garage. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, she said, did you meet some people from LA? And I said, yeah. And she goes, well, they, they, they want you to come to California. I said, get the fuck out of here. And she goes, no, they really do. And I said, oh, come on. And she, you know, so anyway, I got on a, on a train and I went down to her office and, um, she had a uh, a camcorder, you know, those big things with the VHS tape in it. And uh, she asked me to, to uh, tell a story. She pointed it at me and, and told me to tell a story. And I, I well, you know, I made up some stupid thing. Do you remember the story you told? Yeah, I told her a story about me. I went into this, uh, I was in this little diner and um, I was with my buddy and uh, um there was a guy sitting like next to us and he was being a real jerk to the, uh, to the, uh, the waitress, you know, he was just being an asshole. And, uh, and I picked up the mustard bottle and I squirted it in his face. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, that pretty much ended what he was doing. And then I told that story for some reason. And, uh, that's kind of when everything started, you know, I mean, that's when the whole thing kind of became real for me that I would actually be, you know, cause she sent that thing to, to, to LA to the guys who were doing, it was a movie called War Games. It was Matthew Broderick. It was a Matthew Broderick movie. And, um, the guy who had, was the original director was Marty Brest, who did Son of a Woman. And, uh, that was the guy who stopped me and asked me to read in the wings of that theater. It was Marty Brest. But he was no longer the director of War Games by the time they were going to make the picture. It had turned into John Badham. And Marty told John Badham, I met this kid in Chicago, and I don't care what you give him, but just I, anything. But I, that's all I'm going to say, because you've got the movie now, do what you're going to do, but give that kid something. And so he, he did, and he kept his promise to Marty, and the role I had was the guy who's in the, in, in the missile silo. It's in the very opening scenes of the movie. It was the very first thing I ever did, and it was, uh, I was in there with uh, uh, John, uh, God damn it, what's his name? Uh, John Spencer, he was the other guy. And when you're in there, you know, you get, uh, a dr you get a, a, a simulation that there's going to be a nuclear war and you have to snap open these cards and you get a you get a launch code and a key and you both have to put your keys in and you, you have the code and you both simultaneously have to turn your keys to launch a ballistic missile and you never know if it's a training exercise or if it might really be happening 
And so they they test you to find out how much guts you have if you really are going to be able to do this or not. But you don't know if it's a training exercise or not. And so the whole gist of it is that that's how easy it can happen. And we both got our keys in there, and for whatever reason, John Spencer can't do it. And he gets he's nervous and he's sweating. He's like, can't launch to 100. You don't want to kill 150 million people. I think is the line that he says. And uh, and I say, hey man, you know you gotta turn it the key, and he won't do it. And I pull out this 38, and I'm I'm pointing it at him, <laughs> which you know in hindsight is really absurd because what am I gonna do? Shoot him? And what, then we definitely won't be able to turn the keys. And so it kind of didn't make sense that I was threatening with the gun. But theoretically, he would not want to be killed. And he'd rather kill everyone else. Uh, but before I pull the trigger, or before anything else happens, it cuts to the opening titles of the movie. The music and everything. And you never even see me again. It's just a, uh, this little five-minute thing or whatever. But they flew me to L.A. to do that. And they put me at the Sunset Marquis Hotel. And... Uh, I, uh, when I, when I, I asked him if I could come early. I asked him if I could come like, you know, a week before that was going to work. Uh, and they said, yeah, it was my first notion of, you know, these guys in Hollywood and what you can get them to do. And I said, yeah, you know, I, cause, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to get out of Chicago. I really wanted to get the hell out. I mean, I had $400 really to my name at that point. And, uh, uh, I, um, so the first thing I did when I got to the hotel was I, I started looking in the newspaper, I looked in the one ads, and because I knew that I could get hired at a gas station, I had no doubt in my mind, and there was no way I was going to go back to Chicago. And the second day I was there, I went to Beverly Hills, and I didn't know what Beverly Hills was, but there's a Union Seventy Six in Beverly Hills, and uh, it's got a big roof on it, and they have full service and everything. And I went in there, man, and, and this guy Ray was there, Ray Coker, and uh, I, I, I applied for the full service, you know, driveway, you know, just pumping gas and checking oil and that kind of thing. And uh, bam, they hired me on the spot, which is like, wow. I mean. Your first two yeah. jobs in L.A., you got. <laughs> well, they needed somebody or there wouldn't have been the ad in the paper. But, you know, I guess I fit the bill. I mean, I had experience. And so. You know, I could do tune-ups and I could tow cars and fix flat tires and that kind of thing. So you really thought that you were going to be working at a gas station as opposed to working as an actor? Yeah, I thought it was a safer bet. And uh, so they put me there and, and, I, and I, I was working at, at that time they were open 24 hours. And so I would work the graveyard from 6 p.m. to 6 in the morning. And uh, which was really fucking lonely sometimes. There was nobody around at 4 o'clock in the morning. You're sitting there in the middle of Bellevue. Beverly Hills, but I remember right after I started there, it was Christmas Eve, and uh, Fred Astaire came in there. He had a dark red Mercedes, and it had a flat tire. And he rolled in, you know, and I'd never seen a celebrity before. I'd never seen anybody famous before. And he, he pulled up, and he, and, he, and he got out of the car. I was, first thing I was, thought was how small he was. He was a really tiny guy. But I knew it was him, and I was really like, oh, my God, it's Fred a fucking stare, you know? And, uh, and and then he gets out, and he's like, you know, he's like, uh, I'm tired of fighting. Like, oh, yeah, it, it is. And he goes, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to leave it here and, uh, you know, take care of it. And I go, well, sure, uh, you know, you got a spare in there. And he goes, ah, oh, 
I think so. <laughs> I said, well, I can put the spare on or I can fix that one. What do you, I can put a plug in it, you know, if, if it's uh, pluggable. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, whatever you want. I said, okay. And he, he whips out this roll of money and he gives me a $100 bill. And I took it and I was like, wow, man, you know. And uh, I didn't know if he wanted to change or anything. And, I was, and he just walked off. This was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I, to this day, wonder, where the fuck did he go? I mean, he just walked across. I remember watching him walk across the street. And I was thinking, where is he going? And he just went around the corner. He was gone. And I was like, wow, man. And I took the fucking thing. I took the tire off and I put it in the tank. And it was just, you know, the hole was way too big. And I wasn't going to plug it. So I put the spare on there. And then I parked it in the back. And then in the morning, my, my Ray came in. And, he, you know, and I said, Ray, that one, I, that one pretty sure Fred Astaire came in here. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He comes in all the time. And I said, really? And I was so guilt-ridden about that $100 bill. And I took it out and I said, he gave me that. And he goes, I'll just keep it. He goes, he does that all the time. And I was like, wow, man, it's 100 bucks just to change a tire, you know. It's not bad, right? And, and, and over time, uh, everybody came in there. Cicely Tyson and um, uh, Jack Lemon. And uh, Warren Beatty and uh, uh, Peter Falk and, uh, uh, and even even Barney, even uh, uh, Don Knotts would come in there. And they, all these actors that I'd seen all my life, they'd come in there and they want their gas in their car, you know? And then, so it became very normal for me to start seeing people like that. And I Sydney Portier came in there too. And, 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 you know, I'd strike up a little conversation with them. I wasn't going to be overbearing or or anything like that i just tried to be friendly and uh a lot of them really didn't have no time but jack lemon was always in a big hurry he'd run inside and use the payphone and run back outside is it done is done I'd, yeah yeah and he'd race off and uh don Knotson liked to talk he would chat you up about things and he told me he was really didn't want to do the andy griffith show and that he wished he could be a film actor he didn't like it that he was stuck in television and uh, my friend David Caruso, many years later, had the same problem. And he, uh, Warren Beatty came in there uh, one night, and he uh, he asked me if I was an actor. And I said, well, yeah, I'm sort of, you know, thinking about that. And, and uh, years and years later, uh, when we're doing Kill Bill, Warren Beatty was originally supposed to be Bill. He was, before David Carradine, it was Bill. It was uh, Warren Beatty and Uma Thurman were going to be uh, the characters. And so I was going to be his brother. So I had to go out to dinner with Warren. So, because Quentin wanted us to kind of get to know each other a little bit. If we were going to be, you know, brothers in a movie. And I was fine with that, you know. And he would call me up in, in the phone. And, and uh, it didn't last very long because Quentin fired him. And... Uh, because uh, Warren didn't really understand the script, I don't think. And uh, he's a, a, a legendary actor in his own right, I have to say that. But uh, he, he, when I was with him, I said, do you remember me? I asked him one night, and uh, he goes, what? I said, do you remember meeting me, you know, 20 years ago in the, in the Union 76? And he goes, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I don't know if I believed him or not. I, I, I don't know if he, if, he, if he really did or if he was just saying that, but uh, it was very ironic. So tell our audience when you came home and sat on the couch and 
cracked open a beer or whatever it was, and you said to yourself, I'm never going to work another job again. I know this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and I'm never going to take another job except for acting. What was the moment? What happened? I, I got, um, I, I went and I got uh, a meeting for a television show called St. Elsewhere. And it was Denzel Washington and uh, David Morse were the leads of it. And it was about racial tension. Most of the episodes were about that. Howie Mandel in that show? Uh, yeah, I think he was. Wow, I forgot that. And uh, I got the part. And um, I was a, the older brother. My younger brother's getting bullied by my father. And he, my father was this uh, racist guy. And uh, the big scene of the movie is me using the N-word. And Denzel catches me just as I'm saying it. And I was trying to blame that. I was trying to blame... I didn't want to tell the truth about my father beating up my little brother was the whole idea of the episode. I did that, and then I got uh, Miami Vice, and I went and did that. The original the first original. 13 episodes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did two of those, and then I did uh, I did Cagney and Lacey, and I did uh, Jake and the Fat Man, I did Tour of Duty, and uh, obviously I kept taking time off, you know, to go do them. And I'm, I came in one day, and Ray was standing there, and I was telling him. Ray. Ray Coker, my, my boss at the station, he's passed away now. But I came in that day, and I said, I, you know, Ray, I, I got another show. And he's like, God damn it. <laughs> he goes, why didn't you tell us you were an actor when we hired you? <laughs> and I was like, well, I uh, didn't really want to say that, man. And, and uh, he goes, you better figure out what the fuck you want to do, son. <laughs> Because the likelihood of this continuing is about a million to one. <laughs> I was like, well, he goes, we need you around here. I'll make up your mind. And I was like, ah, well, <laughs> Raven, I, you know, you're paying me $2.75 an hour. And, uh, <laughs> you know, buddy, I really, I hate to tell you this, but I don't think I'm coming back. <laughs> and he goes, you can't quit because you're fucking fired. And I was like, oh. Oh, man, okay, that's how it's going to be. But I do have to credit him for getting St. Elsewhere because I was on the way to work when I went to MTM, I think it was called, or on Radford. I, that's where I went to audition for St. Elsewhere, and I was on the way to work. And so I had my Union 76 outfit on. And my pants, my little shirt said Mike and, and all that. They thought you were in character. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I went in there and I read for it. And I left, and by the time I got to the race, like, someone called here for you. That was the first time we had I love the fact that the number you gave out on your resume was the gas station. It was a payphone, man. It was like, there it was. You know? It was and, a payphone. Yeah, was... yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so he's like, look, you got people calling here for you. What the hell's going on? And I said, I, I, I have no idea who it was, you know. And uh, uh, so at lunch, I went and I called the agency, and I said, what the fuck? I said, don't call me here. And they were like, Michael, you got the part. And I go, I did. And they go, yeah. And I go, wow. Wow. I, I, I don't want to say. And she goes, oh, I just want to tell you one thing. The casting director wanted you to know that, you know, 
coming in dressed as a blue collar worker was just genius. <laughs> I mean, do you really think that I went and rented it out from some costume place or something? I, I remember thinking, oh man, it can't be that easy, right? I mean, I am the guy working there. I, you know, I can't pretend that. I mean, I remember when I got off the plane from Chicago, I had a leather jacket and I was wearing motorcycle boots. I, I rode a motorbike, you know, and I didn't realize that in L.A. that's that's a costume. That's a Halloween costume, you know. It, it, it was Dennis Hopper was uh, uh, one of the first people I ever met who pointed that out to me. <laughs> uh, he was doing a photography session for Playboy magazine, and he had to pick three actors to take pictures of, and he picked me, Benicio del Toro, and uh, Robert Downey. And we were all pretty young back then, and so you know, I was like really impressed because I thought Dennis was super cool. Robert Downey Jr. was probably like a teenager. Yeah, we were pretty we were kids, and and so I went to do this thing with him, and uh, we were outside, and. Um, I was really reluctant back in those days to do that kind of thing because I was too self-conscious and I didn't really want to take pictures. And I don't know, the still camera has always frightened me. I don't like it that you're just fun, frozen image, you know. And uh, we were outside and he goes, hey, man, he goes, you don't like taking pictures, do you, man? I'm like, no, not really. And he goes, do you like being an actor, man? And I was like, well, yeah, sort of. And he goes, hey, he goes, what would you have done if you weren't an actor, man? And for some reason, because I really had no desire to be a carpenter, but for some reason I said, ah, you know, I think I would have made a good carpenter. He goes, <laughs> look what happened to him, man. <laughs> it was like a genius thing to say, right? It was so off the cuff. I mean, the guy was so, he wrote a foreword for one of my books. I mean, he, he was became a really good close friend of mine. He was really a, a great, great friend of mine. I remember when I was pumping gas, I wanted to meet Dennis Hopper. He's one of the people I wanted to meet. And so I had bought this blue Sportster from uh, Bart Bartels when they used to be on Washington Boulevard. And uh, it was my first Harley. And uh, I, I, I found out that Dennis Hopper lived, you know, on Indiana Street uh, in Santa Monica or in Venice. And so I figured out where it was and I wanted to see his house. And so I, I rode there on my bike. And I went down the alley behind the place. Later I learned that it's usually not open. But I went down there and the gate was open and I rode right in. And I was in the driveway on my bike and I was looking around and I heard this, hey man. And I looked up and there he was at the window looking out. And he was like, what are you doing, man? And I go, I, I, I wanted to meet you. And he goes, okay, man, you did. Now go, man, go. And he goes, that's usually closed. That gate's usually closed, man. So you go, man. And I was like, okay. So I backed the bike out and I rode away. And then years later, I, I you know, I asked him that same thing. Do you remember that? When I, when I, when I, I rode to your house, you remember that? You were in the window. You were yelling at me. This was like 10 years later. And he goes, was that you, man? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Tell our audience the first time you met Quentin Tarantino and how your relationship unfolded to what it is today. Uh, he, he, um, I, I was at a big agency and I got this script for Reservoir Dogs. And What I, was the I, agency? I was with the Gersh agency. The Gersh agency. They yeah. didn't represent Quentin, though. No. So no, I don't here's, think he even had an agent. Here's an instance where it didn't matter. 
Well, I had done Thelma and Louise with Harvey Keitel. Uh, who was your agent of Gersh? Was it Bob? Uh, no, when I did Thelma and Louise, I was a progressive artist. Oh, God. What about when you were at Gersh? When I was at Gersh, I was Leslie Latkin. Okay. And um, I got the script. I got this thing, and I read it, and I thought it was really good. I thought it was amazingly good. And that was the kind of script. Yeah, I remember when I first read it, and I wasn't nearly as entrenched in the business as I am now, probably. But... I remember reading it and seeing these characters, and when I think of you, if you don't mind me saying, and now that I think back to when I did read it, it could be argued that you could have played three of the characters. Oh, yeah. I, I, so how do you know which one you want to go out for? They told me flat out that, that, that Quentin wanted me to be Mr. Blonde. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be the guy who mutilates this poor policeman, you know, and then I get shot, you know, by Tim Roth. I didn't even know who Tim Roth was. And I, I just didn't want to go out that way. I didn't want to be the idiot who gets killed. And I Now, did Quentin make the offer to you? Now, just so you yeah. did, the audience knows, for those of you who aren't in the business, when you are an agent or a manager and you have an artist that's doing pretty well, the standard term is called offer only. And so they'll check the availability of somebody, or even if the director really wants a person, sometimes there's directors who just want you to read. Like Milos Forman made Nicolas Cage and Jim Carrey read for Man in the Moon. These are two guys who've done probably $500 million movies between each one of them. But he said, hey, I don't care what you've done. You're going to have to read for me. But there's other directors who are okay with making the offer. So his agency was saying he was offer only, but Quentin was probably calling saying, I want you anyway, and you don't have to read, correct? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I, that's the part that he wanted me to do, and that was the deal. And uh, But it was, everybody was getting paid scale. Explain to our audience back then what scale meant financially for it you. It was about $1,500 a week, you know, if, if that. And... I really wanted to do the, the picture, but at that point, you know, I really, I was starting to think about things like that, and, and um, it wasn't the driving factor of it, but uh, it was, I didn't want to play Mr. Blonde. I, I wanted to do Mr. Pink because he had so many more scenes with Harvey, and because I missed, the stuff I did with Harvey and Thelma and Louise got cut out of the movie, and I was so missed what we did together, and I so wanted to spend more time with him you know, than I did with Mr. Bond. And so even though I had the offer to do Mr. Bond, I kept putting it off, and I kept saying, you know, I'd really like this other part. And finally they got pretty frustrated and told me that I would have to go in and meet Quentin and I'd have to read for Mr. Pink. So I did. And that's the first time I met him. It was at uh, 20th Century Fox. It was in the bungalow on, on Pico in the back there. And, uh, you know, I went up there, and there were four or five guys waiting to go in. And, and uh, I went in there, and Quentin was standing there with, with Harvey was sitting on the couch. And that was the first time I met Quentin. And I came in, and, and uh, he goes, so you want to, you know, Mr. Pink? And I was like, yeah, man. And I had studied it and read it, and I knew it inside and out. And... Uh, I said, yeah. And then Harvey goes, oh, I'll do it with you. And I said, okay. 
So he had his pages and he read from the pages, but I was walking around in the office doing it. Very rare for somebody yeah. of Harvey Keitel's caliber mm-hmm. to be in an office with Quentin Tarantino reading something where most actors are making scale. I don't think Harvey Keitel was getting scale. but No, I, he didn't get scale. <clears throat> no, he didn't. But it's normally, like... even when you're on a set and you're doing a scene, obviously you don't just shoot a scene normally, although these days anything can happen. You don't just shoot a scene with one shot, one camera. You're going behind one actor's back to the other and vice versa. And a lot of times you're not even showing the actor's back and things. And a lot of times stars like Harvey Keitel, they have in their contracts that they won't even be on the set and reading the lines to the actor they're doing it with. They put a stand in to read the lines. Yeah. I found that out much later. I went through the similar thing with Al Pacino when I did uh, Donnie Brasco. But, uh... I, anyway, he let me read these, and I thought I was doing pretty good, you know. And then, <laughs> at some point, he was like, is that it? And I go, yeah, that's it. And he goes, you're not Mr. Pink. <laughs> I was like, oh, well. He goes, you're Mr. Blonde or you're not in the film. And I said, wow, well, it was an ultimatum, basically. And I said, well, obviously, then, you know, I want to be in the picture. So, yeah, and... uh I'm sure glad I did, because, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't realize that I was setting the, the mode for me for the next 20 years, you know, I'd be playing psychopathic, <laughs> you know, uh, disturbed people. But uh, see, so it was a mixed blessing. I mean, I'm glad that it happened, because I'd, I'd rather have something like that happen than have it not happen, you know. But uh, I, uh, I guess I was a little too effective in that role, much more than I... I realized, but I, when it first came out, I didn't really embrace it that much. It was only about four or five years later I started really understanding what a great film it is. And, uh, and I thought that was it for me and Quentin, you know? I mean, you got to remember, all of us were really, really super young. And we weren't really that collaborative with each other. I mean, everybody was just in awe of Harvey Keitel. Everybody wanted to be him, you know? That's why we wanted to be in the film. Because when we found out he was playing Mr. White, suddenly everybody wanted to be in it. And, uh, you know, we're going to be a gangster with that guy, you know. And so nobody was really, everybody was very guarded. You know, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie or anything. And the theme of the picture is that they don't really know who the other guy is other than he's named after a color. And so we didn't, we kind of in real life lived that out. We weren't really buddies, you know. And so... At the end of it all, it was just kind of whew, went by so fast. When Quentin called me to do uh, kill uh, to do kill Bill, I was really surprised, you know, to hear from him because that was a couple of years later. And uh, but I was more rounded by then. I was more figured out by then, and and he knew that. And he uh, he knows me so. I mean, that's why I take the hat off in the strip club because he didn't want me to wear that hat. And I wanted to wear the hat. And he let me wear the hat. But then he wrote a scene where I have to take it off, see? So he traded on my reality to come through the character of Bud to have that terrible feeling of taking the hat off. Because I'm not that good of an actor to have acted, you know, that feeling of, well, I go with my hat. I, Michael Madsen, didn't want to take off that hat. And he knew it. So when he wrote that scene, 
He knew I was depending on that hat as a character. I knew what it looked like. And I, 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 it gave me confidence. And he knew that if he told me to take it off and he had somebody insulting me for wearing it, that I wouldn't like that. And I'd be, oh man, I'd be against it psychologically. And that's what comes off on the screen. So he's very smart that way. He's really, really into it. He did that pretty much again in The Hateful Eight in a different way. But he gets to know people and then he, he, he plays them like a puppeteer. <laughs> but I, he, he's a genius and I, I, I couldn't love or have more respect for any actor, any director I've ever worked with besides him. You know? I happen to really like him as an actor and it disappoints me that he doesn't put himself in more stuff. Why is that? I think he gets a lot of grief about his acting performances. I think a lot of people panned him so badly that he just said, look, man, I don't need the abuse, you know. And, and it's true, though. He he, he, do, he did very much. He, he does want to be, he, he likes acting. I always loved the quirkiness of him. I, I think he's gone through so much public renunciation for his acting that he, that he just doesn't want to, he doesn't want to put himself in that situation anymore. I, I, I think he might have, given up on it after Django, I don't know. You know, he's a hard guy to get to know. He really is. He's a very, very complicated man. And he's so, like, he's very gifted and, and guided by a lot of really passionate ideas about filmmaking. But to get to know him, really know him, that's really hard. Has there ever been a movie that you found out he was making and you got a hold of the script and you read it and you're like, man, I love this role here. But you found out that he wasn't reaching out to you for that role. How do you handle that? Do you call him up and say, hey, listen, I know you probably don't think I'm right for this, but could you just consider me for this or you never make that call? He, he wanted me to be uh, in Pulp Fiction. He wanted me to be the John Travolta character in Pulp Fiction. But I was in New Mexico. I was making Wyatt Earp. And I couldn't do it. And so he's never let me forget that. See. Uh, John Travolta should send you a fruit yeah. basket. Well, I, 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 I uh, yeah, I think he owes me money. I, uh, I, I met John. Oddly enough, I never met John until just like two years ago. I met him at the Cannes Film Festival. It was very, it was very odd. I, I came into this dinner thing and somebody told me that he was at a table. And, you know, Travolta's over there at the table. So I went in there, and he was about as far away from me as maybe she is back there. So about that far away. He's talking about Alicia, one of my people working on the podcast, who's probably about twenty feet away from him right now. That's about where John was, and I, and I, I saw him, you know, and he saw me, and we was just like, Jing, you know, it was one of those, right? And I started walking toward the table, and he got right up. He stood right up. And he, and he came to me and met me halfway. And he, Did he know that you had the role? And he Oh, he knew that whole story, yeah. He, he knew all of that. Because uh, it was flat out offered to me, and I couldn't do it. And they went to him after that. Did so he, he thank knew. you? He hugged me, and we were hugging each other. And uh, we were supposed to do this movie called The Vega Brothers, right after Pulp Fiction, which would have been uh, me as Vic Vega and him as Vincent Vega. And we were brothers. So if I had done Pulp Fiction, I would have been playing my own brother because all those characters are intertwined. And we were going to do the Vega Brothers, which was Quentin's way of bringing me and him together in a new story. 
He never did it, but uh, when he was hugging me, uh, Quentin came over with Lawrence Binder, the producer. Yeah. And he goes, ah, oh, look at you guys. And he made Lawrence take a picture of us. He goes, look at these two guys together. He was very excited to see us in the same airspace together, you know. And uh, there, was, there was definitely something there. I mean, I'd love to do something with him. He's, he stayed in touch with me, and we've been really friendly with each other, emailing each other and stuff. And he's been extraordinarily friendly to me. And I didn't never expect that. I didn't ever know what kind of guy he was until we actually met him. Now, be honest with me here. You go to see Pulp Fiction for the first time. You're a very confident man as an actor. You're humble, but you're confident. You watch his performance. Do you say to yourself, I'm a great actor and I would have done a great job here, but I'm going to say this guy was better for this than I would have been? Well, no, I wouldn't say that because I had this conversation with Quentin that same evening, as a matter of fact, after being with him. And, you know, it would have been a different movie. With me, it would have, and that was Quentin's word. I mean, I'm quoting him. It would have been a different film. It wouldn't have been better. It wouldn't have been worse. It just would have been different. I would have bought it. I would have brought a different energy to it. It, it was, Quentin's original intention was to have me in it. And he said, John was, I mean, he's wonderful in a film, my God. It, it turned around his whole career. And it's one of Quentin's most successful films. But, you know, you can torture yourself about these things, but there's no really ever a way to really know if I had done it, would it have been the same? Would it have been the same successful picture? Or would it have not been? Or what if Wyatt Earp had been this hugely successful Western? Everyone would have said, wow, Madsen decided to walk down to the OK Corral instead of doing another Tarantino film. What a brilliant decision. But the fact that Wyatt Earp was a dud and it didn't make any money and, you know, it was uh, turned out to be, um, you know, uh, what it was, that kind of set the table for everybody to say these things. Well, you could have done Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I could have. But that doesn't mean it would have been that had the same momentum or the same feeling. It would have been a different, different, different movie. And it was um, originally Lawrence Fishburne. He went to Lawrence Fishburne and me to be those two guys. Lawrence Fishburne turned it down flat for whatever reason, for personal reasons. And I couldn't do it because I was Virgil Earp. But if you think about it, you know, John and Sam, they're brilliant in the movie. But they're, they are what they are because they did it. If me and Lawrence Fishburne had done it, it would have been a completely different kind of movie. It's amazing how fate works. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is. I... I I had to reconcile that myself a lot of times, but like I say, because the industry is so fickle, if Wyatt Earp had been a big, 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 you know, hundred and three hundred million dollar Western, then nobody would have ever said a word to me about not being Vince Vega. But it was just in the terms of box office, in the terms of you know, that was the only reason that it turned out that way. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. You can tell me the first thing that comes to my mind. It could be one word, could be a sentence, could be a story. Johnny Depp. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that I learned a long time ago that 
talking about other people is a bad idea because sooner or later it will come back to you in ways that you don't expect. And it's really, really, really hard to be flat out honest about different people because when you're trying to be honest, it might be, it might be taken as criticism by that other person or by people who represent him or who represent that empire. Oh, you hear what Madsen said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And see, so you can't really tell the truth about how you really feel. And then again, when you say something about somebody, you run the risk that somebody out there is saying something about you. And so it's kind of this really strange, unwritten thing, I think, that I learned is you know, a lot of these things need to be kept, you know, to yourself. So. All right. I'll keep trying. Halle Berry. Oh, she's wonderful. Yeah. Very, very precious. Very sweet girl. Very open-minded. Very uh, genuine. Mike Tyson. <laughs> he's, he's pretty funny. He's, a, he's much more funny than people know. He's a big bear. He's like a teddy bear. He, uh, I, w I met him at the Chateau Marmont. I was at a cocktail party, and I was standing there, and I, suddenly I felt this, like, presence was next to me. It was a really strange feeling. Of, what the fuck is that? And I turned around, it's him. And he's like, hey, Mike Madsen. Mike Madsen. <laughs> hey, Michael Madsen, you funny guy. You cool guy. And he got me in a headlock. And he was crushing my head. I'm like, Mike, take it easy. He's like, hey, nah, you Michael Madsen. I like you. He's a good actor. And I was like, Mike, let me go, man. He's like, no, I won't let you go. And I was like, hey, man. <laughs> and you could feel his arm was like a vice, you know. And I was like, oh, fuck, man. And some of his buddies were there. I'm like, Mike, Mike, let's go. Come on, Mike, let's go. And he goes, no, I'm going to stay with Mike Madsen. And they're like, no, Mike, Mike, come on, come on. Like, we're sorry. Sorry, Michael. Sorry, Michael. And I was like, guys, it's cool, man. It's Mike Dyson, right? And they just, they, they walked off. But uh, what a great guy, man. What a sweetheart. What a, what a wonderful champion he was. Robert Redford. Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I disagree with him politically. And I don't mind saying that. But when we were doing The Natural, I wanted to run through the wall when Bump Bailey goes through the wall. And he let me do it. In the end of the day, it was his call because they had a stunt guy to do it. But I, I, they let me do it, and I, and I love that he let me do that. And he was very, he was really generous with me, and it was, it was a good, uh, you know, doing a part like that is like your, your dream of actually being a major league baseball player. And uh, I mean, God, you can't put the guy down. He's had a tremendous career. You know, he made some great, great, great pictures. He's a very, very good actor. Ben Kingsley. You know, I wish I had appreciated Ben at the time that we worked together, but he was so serious. And I really, at that point in my life, I didn't like to be around serious people. And I just would tease him relentlessly. And he just didn't like that at all, man. And I, I, I recently apologized to him with an email. And I hope that he got it because I love Ben. And I never really meant him any harm at all. I just honestly, when I would start to tease him, other people would go along with me to join in, you know. Let's fuck with Ben, you know. And I, it wasn't really meant in a malicious way, but he just wouldn't crack. I never got him to smile or laugh. He would just look at me with that Ben face and medicine, you know, and he'd walk off and I'd be like, oh, come on, man, you know. And uh, uh, <laughs> we did a Species together and we did a really bad movie in Romania called Blood Rain. And we had a sword fight with each other and he wouldn't sword fight with me. 
And uh, so in the movie, if you see a sword fighting, that's not him. It's a stunt double. And then when he stabs me, I didn't die, like, tragically. I just kind of looked at him. He put the sword through me, and I just kind of just <laughs> give this incredulous look, you know, and I, was like, ah, I fell down. But in the background, I kept moving around when the camera could see me because I, I didn't want him to have killed me. <laughs> I would do stuff like that and he just would go crazy he hated me when we were doing species uh, he had this thing about his chair you know he said don't touch Ben's chair you know and so you know I, me being me I, I had the, uh, the lighting I had the lighting department pick up his chair and they hung it on the sky from a condor and there was a bunch of McDonald's bags in it and stuff and he came on the set he's like Where's my chair? <laughs> and everyone was kind of like, <laughs> everybody knew exactly where it was. And a couple of people were like looking up and he sort of got it and he saw it. <laughs> he instantly knew that it was me, right? And he just made that bent face. And, <laughs> and he turned around and stopped off the set and it was like, oh man, come on, man. And uh, I think the last time that I insulted him was... Uh, at the Four Seasons, I refused to call him Sir Ben. <laughs> and I purposely kept saying, Ben, hey, Ben, what's up, Ben? Hey, what's going on, Ben? Saying <laughs> him <laughs> Sir Ben. <laughs> just, I I just, and I was teasing him because he was eating meat. I was like, you play Gandhi, man. What are you doing eating that sausage? Like, Come on, man. <laughs> let these people in public see you eat that fucking thing. Come on, man. Come on, Gandhi. What are you doing with that sausage? <laughs> ben? And then, oh, my God. I mean... I didn't realize how abusive it was. I just honestly was just trying to have a laugh. And then I know when I look back on it now, I'm like, oh no, God, it was so mean. You know, and I seriously, honestly do so much apologize to him that I never wanted to be. Um, a friend of mine is a limo driver in Chicago. And he told me that he had Ben as a passenger in his car. And because he knew me, he said to Ben, he goes, oh yeah, I know, I know a friend of yours. Who would that be? And he's like, Michael Madsen. And Ben goes, he's no friend of mine. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, God, man, I got to put this to bed. I hope to God that I, he will forgive me someday. Alec Baldwin. My son Christian kicked him in the nuts when he was only 10 years old. We were doing the getaway, and uh, my son, for some reason, liked to kick people in the balls. And we were doing this scene at the dog track where the guys robbed the dog track. And Christian was on the set. I have a picture of Alex's legs like up in the air and my son right in front of him in mid-kick. <laughs> and I told him, I said, my son kicks people in the balls, so please be careful. He's like, oh, no, I love, where's your boy? Where's your son? He was like, over there. <laughs> and he goes right over to him. And it was weird because he like planted right in front of Christian like he was challenging him to do it. And I was like, no, Alex, no. Right in the nuts, man. And it was like not a good moment, you know, and... and and uh, that was before him and Kim were married. And uh, she was really nice to me. She would go out of her way to talk to me and be nice to me. She's a very shy woman, Kim. Very gentle, shy woman. And she would always talk to me, and he would get so angry because he was Doc McCoy, and I'm uh, Rudy. And we're supposed to be these mortal enemies, you know, these dark enemies. And I guess he was trying to maintain some sort of, you know, actor, you know, tension between us by not being friendly to me. And it drove him insane that she would be friendly to me. Stop talking to Madsen, you know? 
<laughs> and she'd be like, why? Alec, I'm, everything's fine. He's, <laughs> I'm talking to that guy. And, uh, but halfway through the movie, we became pretty good friends. And he had a big burden on his hands because he was playing, he was reading, making a Steve McQueen film, which gave me a reason to needle him the whole time. You know, is that the way you're going to do it? You know, he'd do a scene and I'd go, is that the way you're going to do it? And he'd go, what are you talking about? Go, well, you know, remember when Steve, you know, put his hand over it? And he'd go, stop it. <laughs> and I'd say, no, I'm just saying, you know, I, you know, I, I remember the way Steve did it. Stop talking about McQueen. And I was like, well, okay. But I, I realized I had something there on him and I could use it. But he was great in that film. I mean, he was so much better than they gave him credit for. He pulled it off and it was exciting. It was a good remake. It really was. And then... And uh, um, I'm, I've been friendly with him, you know, all, all, the, all the years that have come after that. I know Billy and, and Steven and Daniel. I've made pictures with all of them. They're a decent bunch of guys. I, I have a lot of respect for those boys. They're, they're good guys. And I just did a boxing picture with Alec a couple, about a year ago in New York. And uh, he's really, he likes to get the last word in a conversation. And believe me, he probably knows who made this. He probably knows where this water came from. I'm sure he probably knows, you know, exactly what kind of microphone this is. He's a very intelligent man, much more than I. And uh, but he's uh, when he's your friend, he's your friend, and there's no bones about it. And I, I really, I, I love Alec. I have a lot of respect for him. Denzel Washington. I, he's a class act, man. He's just uh, a, a pure, a wonderful actor. I thought Flight was one of his best performances. I just incredible, man, how he did that. Um, I've met him, and uh, he was. I met him when he was doing uh, "Devil in a Blue Dress." I met him in Santa Monica, and he's just—he's one of those. He's like, very much like Sam Jackson. They're very, you know, they're just insane, in, insanely gentlemen. They're just insanely gentlemanly-esque. I mean, they're really devoid of all these trappings of, you know race and, 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 and all that business. He's just a guy. And he's a good guy. He's a good man. He's above so many things you might, would not think that he would be or for whatever reason. And uh, I think he's a great actor and I'd sure love to do something with him someday. Uh, I like everything he's ever done. Al Pacino. Al is an enigma and he's very he's very hard to get to know Al. He's a uh, I mean, put it this way, he knows he's Al Pacino, you know, he knows who he is. And, uh, and, I, and I wouldn't want to be him or be at that level because I think what becomes is you start to live in a vacuum. You really literally can't go anywhere without every single person in that fucking room knowing who you are when you walk in the door. And having been around him, I know that sometimes it's a really incredibly uncomfortable thing. And, um, uh, well, when they asked me to do Donnie Brasco, uh, I, I didn't want to read for it. And they said, well, if you don't read for it, then you ain't going to do it. And, Offer only. And I said, well, you know what? Uh, if I do read for it, I'm not going to get it because I'm a terrible, horrible reader. My cold reading is an abomination. And I, if I do it, you're not going to cast me. Your first gig you got was from a cold <laughs> read. Know, but, yeah, but I was dumb and naive back then. And once I got a little smarter, I couldn't read. And I said, no, no, I can't do it. And they said, well, you're not going to get the picture. And I said, if I, if I do read, I won't get it. So what's the difference? And I waited for like two weeks. And finally they were like, okay, man, 
you know, would you have lunch with Mike Newell? And I said, yeah, of course. And at lunch, he tried to make me read. Like, Mike, I'm not going to do it, you know? And he set me up. He's like, okay, so let's go over. And I was like, no, no, man, no. And uh, at that point, I thought it was over. But then they called and asked if I would go meet Al. And I said, of course I will. They said, you'll fly to New York and you'll meet him? I said, yeah, I absolutely will. As long as I don't have to read with him. You know, don't set me up because I ain't going to do it. If I go in the room and he has pages, it's over. And they said, no, 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 no. He just wants to meet you. Obviously, he had casting approval or, or some kind of casting approval. I mean, he's Al Pacino. I'm sure he wanted to know who's going to be Sonny Black. And never having met me, I don't blame him. You know, I don't blame him for wanting to do that. I understood what that was, and so I, 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 I met him. But meeting him is like meeting the president. I mean, he has, you know, a little earpiece in his ear. And, or, the, I mean, his security people, they all got the little thing. And, you know, <laughs> Mr. Petrino, Mr. Matthews, protein, you know. And they go down this hallway, and then down another hallway, and another hallway. You know, and finally he, he's in there and has a door. And I go, what? Is he? he? He's in there. Yeah, yeah we're outside. Yes, Michael's here. You know, I'm like, wow, man. Wow. You know, it was like this big thing. I go, okay. So I go in and there he is. And he was standing, he was looking out a window with his back to me. And I went in the room and I didn't know what to do. You know, I felt very awkward. And I'm looking around and you know, the guys were in the hallway and they're staring at me from the hallway, you know. And so I closed the door. And and I kept expecting Al to turn around, but he still hadn't turned around. And uh, there was a big bookcase behind me. And so, you know, I took a book out. And I, you know, like a fool, and I'm sitting there pretending to read the book. And all of a sudden I hear that, you like that book? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, it's him. He's talking to me, you know. And I realized he could see my reflection in the window. Well, even though he was looking out, he knew what I was doing. He liked that book, and I'm like, ah, I, I don't even know what book it is, man. You know, and I put it down. And so he turns around, he goes, ah. He goes, ah, you like the script? And I go, yeah, yeah, I, I like the script. And he goes, well, what would you change about it? And I go, uh, how come Sonny doesn't have the birds? Because Sonny Black used to keep pigeons on his roof. And it's in the in the novel, Donnie Brasco, and it's not in the screenplay. And he goes, what, do we want the birds? And I go, yeah. And he goes, no, no, you can't have the birds. No, you can't have the birds, Sonny, no. And I said, uh, well, you know, why not? And he goes, ah, because, because uh, you know, people will have sympathy for you if you have the birds. And uh, nobody can have sympathy for it. Sonny Black, no. I said, oh, yeah, I sort of get that. You have those God, yeah, those damn birds, everyone will care for you. And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And that's why I wanted them, right? That's why I wanted the birds, because I wanted to have, oh, putting their little feet, you know, put their little things on there, and feeding them, oh, here, man. That way, when I slaughter someone, it wouldn't be so bad, you know. I, you know, oh, he's not that bad. He loves those birds, you know. But he goes, he goes, oh, I know, I know why you want the birds. And he goes, oh, I'll, I'll get the birds. And I go, oh, you're getting the birds, huh? He goes, oh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're just going to take them from me, huh? You're going to switch that around in this story. Suddenly you have birds. And uh, he goes, oh, can I have the birds? And I'm like, all right. No, I get it. I, I don't have the birds. And so, you know, that was it. And we were both just standing there, and it was very awkward. And I was like, 
okay. And I go, is that it? And he goes, yeah, yeah that's it. Oh, that's it. And I went, wow, in my mind I was thinking, is that it? It's, it's over. And I left, you know, and uh, I said goodbye and all that. And I left, and uh, when I got back, to, I was at the St. Regis. And when I got back, there was already a message on my phone that I, that I had to part. And so he was that quick in, in calling whoever he had to call. But what a wonderful thing. What a great experience, you know. What a great memory I have of, of, of getting that part, you know. Awesome. Uma Thurman. You know, when I would go in for the rehearsals of Kill Bill, um, she wouldn't speak to me. And she wouldn't look me in the eye, you know. And I had never met her before. And I know, you know, I had to do all these dastardly things to her in the movie. And I really wanted us to kind of be, you know, at least friendly. But she wouldn't make any emotional contact to me. She would, like, walk right past me. And I you know... It started to get to me. And around the third table read, I, I said to Quentin, I go, you know, I don't think she likes me very much. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, that's just her way. That's just the way she is. You know, don't worry, because when it comes time to do it, you know, I, I promise you she'll be right there for you. But just, you know, leave her alone. And I was like, okay, you know. And the very first stuff we had to do together was in the, in the graveyard when she's in the back of the pickup truck. And her feet are tied up, and I take the tailgate down and I pull her out onto the ground. Did she do a stunt, or did when I first went to the set, her stunt double was in the truck, tied up, and I was like, "Oh man, you know, okay, you know, okay, I'm gonna do that to the stunt double." And they were setting up some other thing, and when I, I when I came back, it was her, and she was in the truck, and when I walked over, I looked over and I said, "You know, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey." And she was right there staring dead at me in my eyes. And I was so surprised to see her. And I was like, holy shit, it's Uma. And, and from that day forward, she was right there with me. Every scene, every moment she played, she was great. She was wonderful. Harvey Keitel. Oh, my gosh. He, uh, well, he's Max's godfather. Uh, he became Max's godfather when Max was just like, you know, less than a year old, I think. Just for those of you who don't know, Michael's son Max is here, who is an extraordinary young filmmaker. And I get the feeling that there's something special about this kid, and he's here about as far away as John Travolta was <laughs> from him at that tape. <laughs> Harvey was, uh, I don't know, man. There's certain actors that what you see is what you get. I, I, he's like Robert Duvall. It's like, that's how he is. Like, you, you see a Harvey Keitel movie? That's exa that's how he really is in real life. He is that guy. Robert Duvall is that guy that you see. And a lot of actors aren't like that. They can play that, but they're not really that. But he is that. And that's why I, I love him so much. And that's why we were so good with each other, like spontaneous, you know. Anything I would throw at him, he'd come back with something. And he could give it to me, and I, I'd come back with something. And uh, you know it when you're in the room with him. It's like... I got to deal with this man, you know, when that guy's in front of you, yeah, I got to deal with that, you know. And he, uh, uh, we did Thelma and Louise together, and um, Ridley Scott let us uh, make up some scenes. Like when I tell Susan in the, in the diner that I'm not going to tell the cops where she is, there's a scene with me and Harvey because they go to arrest me, and I go to the precinct and I explain to him that I don't know what happened, I don't know where they are. And he's showing me mugshots, and he shows me a mugshot of Brad Pitt. 
And I go, I'd never seen before in my life because they want to find out what happened to the money that I gave her. And so I, it wasn't in the script, in the screenplay. So me and him made up a bunch of stuff in his office. Like while he's asking me questions, I took out a cigarette and I lit it. And he's like staring at me and I went like this and I, I tapped the ash on the floor and he almost climbed up over the top of his desk to tackle me. Cause first he asked me to put that out. You know, don't smoke in my office. And I, so I took another drag of it. And I went like that. <laughs> he, he just, he was climbing over the desk to jump on me. And Ridley's like, cut, cut, cut. And there was so many things we did that were not in the movie. I really kind of was sad about it. And when I heard that he was going to be Mr. White, I was so happy because I wanted to work with him again. And we got really tight on that picture. And I asked him to be Godfather to Max. And, and uh, he, uh, he was just... Uh, I haven't seen him for a while. I miss him. Brad Pitt. I never really, was never really, uh, Brad and I were together in Thelma and Louise, but uh, I smoked a joint with him. <laughs> I'm sitting on the corner waiting for the van. Every movie you do, there's always an actor and actress doing their first thing. Yeah. When you met him, are you the kind of guy who can meet somebody and say, that guy's going to do huge things? I didn't think that at all about him, at all. I mean, he was, to me, a complete unknown, as far as I know, to everybody else, too. But, you know, he had, he had the good role, you know? He's got the guy in the cowboy hat with no shirt on, and he's the reckless one who, you know, gets Gina Davis in the sack, and... His role was perfect for somebody who's trying to make themselves, right? And, you know, he had that quality that worked for that. And I don't think anybody at the time was really going, wow, this kid is, you know, the next James Dean. And there wasn't really that feeling about it. And he wasn't really, we were only around each other for about three days. And, and we didn't really, we were just two actors in a movie. And we didn't really chat that much. We didn't really talk that much. We never really got to know each other. We didn't really have a chance to know each other. But he, I remember him being pretty easygoing, and, and uh, I don't think he made a problem for anybody. And, uh, you know, I mean, look at him now. He's, uh, I saw him when I was shooting Hateful Eight. His office was on the same studio where we were doing the interior. And I seen him a couple times in the lot, getting in and out of his car. And, you know, we said hello to each other, and he was friendly, and... Uh, you know, he's a good guy. John Malkovich. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because the whole thing with him tutoring me has been really blown out of proportion. I mean, I I respect John. He was at Steppenwolf when I first went there. I watched him do uh, I watched him do Mice and Men with Gary Sinise. He was Lenny, Gary was George, and the first time I saw a live play with actors right in front of me, you know, I was like, wow. It wasn't like watching a the movie. There was a real human beings right in front of me acting. And I just was very taken by John. I mean, he was completely unknown. I mean, him and Gary were basement theater actors. Nobody really outside of Chicago had any idea who these guys were. And you think of the enormous success they both had since then. But I remember being really just, his Lenny was just mind-boggling to me. And after the play, I actually, I got up out of my seat and I walked across the stage, which you're not supposed to do. 
And I went in the back room and I was walking down this hallway and there was all these little dressing rooms. And there he was. He was sitting there and he was taking off his shoes. And he had this big stack of Dr. Scholl's pads in his shoes. And his shoes were much bigger than his foot size. And I remember I instantly saw that and I realized that he had put these big things on his feet to make Lenny be more cloddish, you know, and be a little bit awkward, you know, with these goofy shoes. And I was like, wow, it's the first time I noticed what an actor does. And uh, I stuck my head in the room. And the first thing he said to me, he goes, you look like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and I go, I, I do? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, uh, I'm not. And, and he goes, what do you want? He goes, you're not supposed to be back here. And I said, I, I, I just wanted to tell you, I thought you were so tremendous in the, in the play. I said, wow, it was really something. And he goes, are you an actor? And I go, well, yeah, I was thinking about it. And he goes, well, he had this yellow steno pad. And he goes, what's your name? I said, Michael Matson. And he wrote it down. He goes, you know, we do scene study class here. I said, you do? And he goes, yeah. He goes, what's your address? And he wrote down my address, and he wrote everything down. And he said, uh, I'll send you a, a flyer in the mail. And I said, wow, really? And he goes, yeah. And I thought he was full of shit. I mean, I never thought he was actually going to do it. And it, it came in the mail on my birthday, for Christ's sake. And it was, uh, it was a, a, a brochure for scene study classes at Steppenwolf. And so I went, and I took scene study, but I only did it for like a month. I got really bored really fast, and uh, he wasn't really around when I went there. And so, but but my association with him was was very early on, yeah, that part of it. Steve Buscemi. I, I met Steve when we did Reservoir Dogs. I had never met him and didn't know who he was. I never heard of him. The first time I heard his name was when I told Quentin I wanted to be Mr. Pink. And he goes, no, 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 I have another actor for that. And I said, well, who the fuck is it? He goes, oh, it's a guy from New York. His name is Steve Buscemi. And that's the first time I ever heard his name. And uh, I think he's mad at me because he asked me to be in Trees Lounge. And I was doing something somewhere and I couldn't do it. And I think Daniel Baldwin did that part that he wanted me to play. But I, Steve's very, uh, he, he's a great actor. I mean, he's, he's, he's a very unique type. You know, there's nobody like him. And uh, we got along pretty good. And uh, I've often really wanted to do something with him, but uh, our paths never crossed again. Kevin Costner. I'm going to take the high road with that one like I did with Johnny Depp. So, <laughs> I mean... I, I, the, the, you know, it's such a, it's a big question. It's one of those questions that's impossible to answer without, you know, it would be a long answer, and, and we don't have time for that, I don't think. All right. I want you to think about all your regrets, all your mistakes, the things you've done that have been self-destructive, and put them all together and share with us a story that you were involved in that shaped a part of you and changed you forever. You know, I, I slipped into a, a dark time of, of, of drinking. I slipped into a very, very deep void of, uh, of uh, um, you know, I never liked the word alcoholic, and I never liked that tag. But when you start people start thinking that about you, it's, it makes it worse. And I don't think I ever was that. I definitely was somebody who abused it because 
there was no amount of it that was enough. I mean, I could literally drink three, four bottles of vodka in a day. I, I, literally, I had no bottom. And I knew other actors who were doing the same thing. And, you know, there was a time when that was pretty much normal behavior. You know, snorting blow and drinking. There was a lot of guys in my contemporaries. And I mean, everybody was doing that at that time. And it wasn't considered to be bad, you know. But the thing is, is that if you, if you don't get control of it sooner or later, it will destroy you, you know. And, you know, people die, you know. Uh, um, Heath Ledger and River Phoenix and, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Elvis Presley and, and uh, you know, some tragic, tragic, tragic things that happen if you don't get a handle on it. And I just know that I, I wasted, uh, I wasted a couple years just being fucked up. And, you know, I can sit here and I can give you a thousand reasons why it was happening. You know, my personal life was in tremendous turmoil and financially I, I was ruined. And I have five sons and raising five boys is not easy to do. There's a tremendous amount of responsibility connected to it. And as they grow up, you know, they take you through the phases of their manhood. And it's really, wow, you got to be there for everyone and for everything that they need. And sometimes you can't be. And being away from home and traveling and doing bad movies in a foreign country, it's crippled me. It was just being away from my family and um, not being appreciated and or feeling not appreciated. Or when you become Santa Claus, the last thing in the world you want to do is show up at Christmas Eve with an empty sack. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I usually say when you teach your kids to believe in Santa Claus, sooner or later they're going to find out that there is no Santa. And they're going to feel betrayed and they're going to feel like, why did you encourage us to believe in this mythical character of goodness and wonder and, and uh, in the snow with his sled and the reindeers. And in reality, there is no fucking Santa Claus and there never was. It wouldn't have been better to just tell us in the flat out that there is no fucking Santa unless and then we had to grow up with that fantasy. And I equated myself to that, 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 that vision of me being a super dad and the great actor and the kid from, from nothing who made it. And, you know, I had the, I had the race cars in the garage and the motorcycles and living on the beach. And, you know, that's a pretty hard level to maintain sometimes. And when I felt it being threatened, I just, it was, I, I, uh, the, what the mistake you make is thinking that it's not hurting you when you're endlessly drinking and drinking and drinking. And I think it all came to a head when I got a DUI. And, uh, you know, the circumstances of that are it's not worth talking about, but these things, when they happen, they happen for so many different reasons than you ever get a chance to explain. And all people know is, oh, he's fucked up, he's drunk, all oh, that fucker, he was drunk, and he got a DUI, whoa, you hear about Matson? oh. But they don't really know what really happened or how it happened, or the circumstances surrounding it. And because you don't really get to talk about that, it, it becomes this thing that happened to you that 
Nobody will forget or forgive you for it. How dare you do that when you were famous and successful and all this? But, you know, it's happened to far more talented people than I. It's happened to far more bigger celebrities than I will ever be. And so it can't be this thing that just happened to me. It's happened to a lot of people. But the difference is, is that it got so bad that I really, I realized that I just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, I, you know, in a way, I should have been dead a couple times considering how much of it I was doing. And because I lived through it uh, physically, I, I, I guess I, I had to realize that there must be some God out there. There must be a higher power that, that maybe likes me a little bit and was looking out for me. And uh, I never had a father figure that, that loved me or that I felt that was proud of me. And I realized that a lot of that shit really fucked me up really deeply, a lot more than I ever realized. And when my dad passed away, it was almost like this big weight got taken off of my shoulder. And I realized that, well, maybe he did love me, but he just didn't know how to say it, which I understand. I get that because I'm very much like him in, in, in certain um, thought pattern that I know that he had. And I, you have to forgive yourself, you know? And um, I, uh, because I left the country for my DUI and I didn't show up at court when I should have, uh, by the time I came back to LA, my case was taken out of Malibu and put into Van Nuys. So when I went before the judge in Van Nuys, they threw me in the rehab for 30 days. You know, I wasn't really being thrown in there because of that I was on drugs. It was because I had ignored a court order. But when I went in there and where I went in, they didn't call people alcoholics. And it was this huge kind of a, of a, of a turnaround for me because not being called a name made, it, made me look at it in a different way. I didn't feel like I had some disease that was incurable. I didn't think that I was this pariah or this freak or this cripple that just had to have a drink. I realized it was more than that. It was just me trying to kill the, the, the endless anguish and anxiety and frustration that I had of thinking I didn't deserve to be successful. I didn't deserve to make it as an actor. I really didn't have any talent at all. And it was all bullshit. And, 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 and I realized that came from my dad because he endlessly would beat it into my head that being an actor was, uh, was not noble. And it was a sissified thing to do. And if I wasn't breaking rocks with a hammer or punching a clock 12 hours a day, I was nothing. You know, if I didn't want to be a firefighter, well, then I was nothing. Being an actor to him was a joke. And uh, I realized that I had been carrying that, 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 that thing around for so long that I, I, I was self-sabotaging myself along the way. I secretly wanted to prove him right, that I wasn't worth it. I wasn't talented. I had nothing to offer anybody. And when you start getting to the point where you're just pounding it in, you lose perspective of everything. And your health goes down the toilet. And you start to look bad and feel bad. And you wake up sick in the morning. And if, if you if you're, have any notion of anything, you get sick of being sick. And you get tired of feeling fucking sick and beat up and 
you know, you create these memories with your kids and with people around you where you're just this fucking monster, you know, you're just this, this crazy, I mean, I'm a fucking scary guy, man, when I, when I, you know, when I want to be. It's one thing to act that, it's another thing to actually be that when you're fucking hammered. And I was, in the beginning, I was a happy, friendly drunk. But as it got worse and worse, I became a violent, fucking violent, scary, dangerous drunk. And that's when you got to realize that it's so, uh, I was, I was purposely self-destructing myself because I wanted to not have the success I had. But, you know, in the end of my dad's life, it was pretty much when I started to taper off. Uh, he, I heard about some things that he had said when he was still alive that he never said to me. And then I realized, well, he did kind of did, did love me. But then I thought, you know what? I got my own, my own, it's not too late for me. Which I made pretty clear when I did Hateful Eight. And uh, I got in shape and I got my shit straightened out and I showed up and God damn it, I did a good job. And I don't think a lot of people expected that. They figured, oh, Matson had his day and you know, he's moved on, but it's not gonna be the story. And I also felt like, I really owed it to my, my sons. I owe it to my boys to have a dad, to be present, you know? I got a little 10-year-old, and if you think I'm going to waste any more of my life when I got a little 10-year-old, it ain't going to happen. You know, I so much enjoy taking him to school every day and, and uh, just the normal, basic dad stuff. I, I, I love it, you know? I was a good pop to all my sons, and the best I could be. And I know for a fact that they all have good memories and they all love and respect their father. Outside of the crazy shit that I did, I know that I rose above it in my goodness and thank God that I did. Or they all would have told me to go to hell years ago. And, and when I realized I still had a chance to, to, to save it uh, and that I hadn't died, I was really thankful for that, you know? And uh, I'm much more cognizant now of, of maintaining that. You know, you look your son in the eye and you know that he remembers something bad that you did. It's terrible. It's really heartbreaking. And, and you want to, you know, I've always been a fighter. I've always been good at a comeback. I've always been when I'm the downest I can be is when I'm at my best. Like you back me into a corner and I'm going to fucking, I'm going to come out of that corner like an animal. You know what I mean? I can't. You can push me and push me and push me and push me, and I'll be the biggest, you know, until you get to that moment where you're going to snap. And then I get this huge amount of, of, of will to live and will to do well and will to rage back and fix everything I ever fucked up. And I, I, I did it, you know, as I sit here. And uh, I'm proud of that, you know, and it's okay to be proud of it. And I just got to keep going and I got to keep being strong. I got to keep looking for you know, the right projects and the right things. And, and uh, um, you know, you lose your respect in this industry, it's a motherfucker to get it back. You know, I saw Mickey Rourke go through that. You know, Mickey was, Mickey's a great actor. He's a very uh, um, empathetic actor. He's very uh, organic, you know. I mean, he is that guy. And I, I, I saw him go through that, and I, I've spent time with him, and I know that, uh, you know, before The Wrestler, everybody, that's over for Mickey, but it wasn't, you know, and, and, and he did that.
I think as unforgiving as the industry can be, they also really love a comeback, and they like people who saw it through. And that's I'm in I'm in I'm in that I'm in the I'm in that stage right now of of reestablishing myself with some respect. And I just thank God that I didn't. Uh, you know, I got pretty. Uh, I've jumped out of moving cars that were going 30, 40 miles an hour. You know, I've, 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 I've jumped out of windows and I've been uh, shot. I've been stabbed. I've been, uh, I've done stunts that would kill somebody. I've done stuff I should never have done. I should have let stunt people do it. You know, I, I've done some really dangerous things and with my health also. And so there must be a reason why I survived, you know? And so I appreciate it now. And I don't want to do that anymore. And uh, I regret a lot of things, but I, I don't regret it enough to cripple me, you know? I mean, I like, I feel so bad for Jan Michael Vincent, you know? I mean, there's somebody who went so far there is no coming back, you know? Or, or, or maybe they exist as, a, as, a, as an example for other people to look at, but uh, if you have your kids and my wife, my wife, has been through some pretty dark shit with me. And she never left me. And if she had been doing what I was doing, I would have been out the door. And so you gotta hand it to her, you know? And I'm so happy we're together now, it's insane. I mean, I, I'd be away from her for less than a day and I can't stop thinking about her. It's, uh, and my, my sons have become the major, major important for me. The, the, the boys that are in their 20s, that are growing older, they're on the road, you know what I'm saying? They're on their way to their future. And there's a certain amount of that that you have to let them do it. Yeah, sooner or later, you have to give them the key and say, okay, go ahead. I can put you in the room, but you're going to have to stay in the room on your own. And there's only so much I can do. And then your focus goes on the younger sons, the younger kids, and you want to be there for the younger ones. And I'm in that middle ground now. My older sons are moving away, and I got my two younger boys that I'm, live with in the house and this one over here who's uh you know he he finally realized what he wanted to do and and now he's doing it he directed his first short film he wrote it produced it and directed it and so you know it was worth every penny to put him through school and all that and uh seeing them find their way is is, is great it's such a good feeling even even my other son who just went in the military you know what i wouldn't have never expected that in a million years but that's what he wanted to do, and so happy that he found what he wanted to do. And uh, I'm just, I look forward to the future more than I have in many years, you know? And as someone like you, you know, you just come out of nowhere and you got this wonderful little show. And I thought, you know, goddammit, because I wouldn't ever do anything like that before. I would be too intimidated or I'd be thinking, ah, fuck that guy, man. That fucking bullshit, man. You know, that's how I was, but I, I'm not that guy anymore, you know. When he, just the very fact that you wanted or even cared to talk to me about anything, I felt so fortunate. I'm like, wow, man, I still got it. Wow, wow, I can still do this, man. And when you were doing that intro about me, I was just blown away. I forgot about most of that stuff, or it's never really said in one sentence, right? And I was going, wow, hey, man, I, I did a lot of stuff, didn't I? It was, it was great hearing it. You know, you made me feel wonderful. And uh, uh, I thank you for that. But see, that wouldn't happen if I didn't show up. Oh, I thank you so much. All right. Final roundup here. Your proudest moment in show business. 
Oh, man. I was staying at the Four Seasons Hotel in, uh, in uh, Vancouver, and I was doing a movie called Vice. And Al Pacino was there. No, I was doing My Boss's Daughter with Ashton Kutcher. I was a bumbling drug dealer in the, in the film. And Al Pacino was staying at the Four Seasons because he was doing uh, um, Insomnia with Robin Williams. And I seen Al's assistant in the lobby. I didn't even know he was staying there. And I was really, really sad because I, I had a couple of days off. And I couldn't afford to get on a commercial flight to go back to L.A. I wanted to see my, my boys. And uh, I seen Lou in the lobby. And uh, Lou has since passed away. God bless him. But he, he saw me and he was like, hey, Mike. And I was like, fuck, man, what are you doing here? And he was like, Al's here. You know, he's doing... Uh, Insomnia, and I was like, "Wow!" And he goes, "What are you doing?" I go, "I got a couple of days off. I don't know what to do." And he goes, "You want to go to L.A.?" And I went, "Well, yeah." And he goes, "Hell, Al's going to go to L.A." And I was like, "Okay, you know, what does that have to do with me?" And when I went up to my room, my phone rang, and it was him. He's like, "Hey, I'm my medicine." I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "I got a jet." And I go, "You what?" He goes, "I got a jet." And you got a jet? He goes, "Yeah, I got a jet. It's green and white." <laughs> I was like. Wow. Okay. Well, good for you, man. You got a jet. It's great to hear from you, man. I mean, I knew it was him. And I was like, yeah, I saw Lou. And he goes, ah, I know. And I said, well, he goes, I want to ride. I want to take a ride. And I was like, take a ride. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I want to get on a jet. And I went, yeah, fuck yeah. So I have to say, the next morning when I went to the airport and got on the jet with Al, he took me to, to Van Nuys Airport. We landed and got off the plane and I got to see my kids and then Three days later, I went back to Van Nuys, and there he was, standing there, reading the newspaper. We got back on the jet, and he took me back, back to Vancouver. And I, wow, you know, I mean, that, that has to be a pretty good moment, you know? It was, I'll never forget that. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next point and level. I did a boxing picture called Strength and Honor, and I, I was a, uh, an Irish American prize fighter. And um, I got in the best shape of my life. This was before my, you know, drowning in alcohol. And I, 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 I got in the best shape of my life and I had a fight with a kickboxer from Thailand and I had to spar with a middleweight champion from Ireland. And uh, I got up every morning and would run three or four miles and I stopped smoking. I wasn't even drinking beer. And I got in really, really good shape. And I had to fight Vinnie Jones at the end of the movie. And Vinnie Jones is no pussy, right? And um, I had to have six or seven fights in throughout the movie. And then the big one with him at the end. But I played a guy who was trying to save his son, get enough money together to save his boy with an operation. And you know what? The movie was good. It was really, really, really good. Probably... I would say one of the best things I've ever done. And it never got any distribution. It never got a major theatrical release. Um, the producers and the director were very inexperienced at selling a movie. And they didn't put it in front of the right people. And it never made it out. And that thing would have... Uh, it would have turned the direction of my whole career. You know, it was, it was that good. 
And when that didn't happen, I was really, really, really decided that I had done the wrong thing with my life and there was no point in trying anymore. It just shattered me. I couldn't believe it because I always wanted to make a film like that. And I didn't play a fucking bad guy either. I was a good man, you know, I was a, a father who was fighting for his kid. And I did, I pulled it off, you know, even the accent. I mean, I, I was good. And I got a lot of praise from a lot of critics and it won 30 or 40 different awards, including Best Actor for me in a couple states. And, and, but it didn't make it out. And it's so troubling to me that a movie like that, because it didn't make it out, is completely disregarded, like it never even happened. And it was something I had to just accept it and realize, oh, well, you know, that's the way it goes. But that was one of the contributing factors to my... my uh... But see, if that happened again, I wouldn't do that. You know what I'm saying? It, in, in the end, I became more determined than ever to, to come back and, and to do something equally as good. What advice do you have for the young person who is basically working at a gas station somewhere for $2.75 an hour, doesn't know what they're doing with their life, and to put it all together and to get together and to find themselves and to have the kind of career that you've had. I could, I could sum it up in two ways. I could say, get another job. Do something else, man. Or I could say, just don't ever, ever give up. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do it. And don't let any bad circumstances, you know, ruin you. Or just, if that's what you want to do, you better realize that you've picked the worst, hardest thing that there is to do. Even today with people who are overnight success or people who are huge stars on reality shows, 20, 30 years from now, nobody is going to remember one single person who did that. They're going to remember the people like Jimmy Stewart or Clint Eastwood or, or uh, William Holden or, or Alan, Alan Ladd or Elizabeth Taylor, you know, Richard Burton, you know, uh, Kirk Douglas, who's like almost 100 now. Uh, Bert Lancaster and Lee Marvin and Ernest Borgnine, who I, I did a cowboy picture with him. These guys, Ingrid Bergman and uh, uh, Hedy Lamarr and Barbara Stanwyck, you know, Jane Fonda, you know, people who had a longevity and they truly left uh, uh, this, this monumental body of work, Henry Fonda and People who left this body of work that is undeniably incredible, and we're still watching their movies today. And I, that's all I ever wanted. I, I just want longevity now. I just want to do it as long as I can. And that's really what it is. It's not, oh, I don't want to be famous, you know. You don't want to be famous or you want to be a good actor. There's a big difference. If you become famous of being a good actor, well, great. But don't set out to be famous. If that's your goal, then you shouldn't do it. Michael Madsen, let me tell you something. I'm going to remember you 50 years from now. You were awesome today. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm really glad Max was here. I'm so glad he was too. All right, thanks, man. I oh, appreciate you're welcome. it. You're welcome, big guy. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, 
and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Team Beachbody coach Amanda Bush from Marshall, Michigan. Well, Team Beachbody coach Amanda Bush, congratulations. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, this is from Jan the Man 50, July 27, 2015. Title is Inspirational, five stars. And it reads, Barry's vulnerability and willingness to challenge his guest is pleasantly balanced with the variety and quality of guests. It's one of my must-listens each and every week. Thank you very much, Jan the Man 50. I appreciate it. Congratulations. As always, this has been another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame you get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.